ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Well, hello, everyone. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. As ever, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? I'm doing great. And uh, we're here with a guest today, um, Doc Sapolis, as he's known on the uh, across the boards, a, a veteran. Um, we're going to call him Sarp, uh, which is uh, which is what he goes by. How are you doing, Sarp? Excellent, Parv. How are you doing? I'm I'm very good. And uh, obviously, we're we're uh, looking at Halloween Havoc '89 today. But before we do that, uh, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about uh, your background as a wrestling fan? All right. Well, let's see. My grandfather, my father's father, was a wrestler and wrestling promoter. Um, while he had a fairly successful career, I guess his biggest claim to fame is as a member of the board of the NWA, eventually landing the Amarillo Territory and running the Amarillo Territory until taking on Dory Funk Sr. as a partner and then ultimately leaving it to Dory Funk Sr. after my grandfather passed away. Uh, as I understand it, my grandfather did a came up with a lot of what the popular vert way of booking ended up being. Like if you talk to, if you hear, listen to a lot of shoots with guys like Bill Watts, Kevin Sullivan, guys like that, they'll say that the main person they learned from was Eddie Graham. And if you ask them a little bit more, they'll say that Eddie Graham learned from my grandfather. Wow. That's, a, that's amazing, brought, isn't it, Chad? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that's uh I always love hearing stuff about kind of the pioneer days uh, and basically how we kind of got to the landscape of wrestling today. So uh, I love I love listening to history about that. What, what era was this from? Was this like the 1950s, 1960s or, or before that? Uh, it's before that and through that. He passed away in, I want to say, 61, so well before I was born. So I never got to know him. So all these stories either come from my father or from what I could pick up from Books, texts, and shoot interviews. Did Did he leave any cool memorabilia? No, see, I, I didn't get I didn't get a hold of anything. The um, well, my my father was not a product of um, a marriage with my grandfather. Right. So, I, I didn't get left all the goodies. I, that went to somebody else, I'm sure. But I, I'm guessing uh, Dory and Terry must have known him at some at some point. Absolutely, and I got to talk to both of them, um, Dory extensively on the phone one time, and Terry in person at one of those wrestle reunion shows. And oh yeah, they they remembered him very well, and got to talk about that for a little while. Is uh, is Dory uh, any more interesting in real life than he is in the ring? Yeah, but is that really saying much? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and and what about your own uh, journey as a wrestling fan? I mean, did you always know about that, and is that the reason you got into wrestling, or? 
yeah, wrestling fan. Yeah, I imagine so. I mean, I, I guess when you're hearing those stories as a little kid, and as, as a little kid, if wrestling is going to be appealing to you to begin with, I think that set it in motion for why it was more appealing to me than your average kid, because I, I felt a certain connection to it. Even though I never got to know my grandfather, I got to hear all these stories from my father and, and visiting a locker room and lots of, lots of stories like that. And I was born in 78, so I was at the exact perfect age for what Vince McMahon was targeting in terms of his, his demographic when he was going national. And you're on the West Coast there, right? Have you always been based there? Yeah, I'm born in San Francisco and raised around Oakland my whole life. And since I was born in 78, the territory here was dead and gone by the time I was getting to the age where I would start watching stuff on my own. So there was nothing... And Vince did a very excellent job of penetrating this area. And it's always been kind of WWF country, right? Yeah, un unfortunately. <laughs> and, I mean, was that primarily what you watched uh, growing up, WWF? When did it, you... was, it was, but it wasn't very long before I started noticing Crockett on TV. And my immediate reaction was, wow, this is a lot better. Most of the kids I hung out with didn't really agree, but I, I immediately was drawn to it being more gritty. It, it's funny, it was, maybe it was ingrained in me genetically somehow, since it's far more in line with whatever my grandfather was probably presenting, a little bit more gritty, southern, more violent version. Right. And uh, d w have you basically been a fan all the way through, right, right, mm -hmm. from, uh, right from when you were a kid to, to now, or did you have any periods where you zoned out? Have you had any periods where you were particularly into the product, etc.? Not really. I don't think there was ever a period where I zoned out. If I, if I didn't like the current product, I would just spend more time watching something else. Like I would geek out on another era or another area or another territory or if I was really down on what was going on on domestic TV, fine, I'll watch some more J Japan or Lucha or old school or something else. Right. And uh, when, I mean... Have you always kind of been a hardcore fan? Um, like, when did you first start getting getting into Japanese wrestling and lucha and kind of broadening your, your horizons? That may speak to why this particular show we're going to review tonight is, is a big show to me because the era was so big to me because I can probably point to the great Muda is being really impressed with him and thinking he was cool as shit as a little kid and immediately wanting to be see more of what was going on in Japan. And, of course, the relationship with New Japan would continue as a couple of years after this, we would see the New Japan Super Show and literally get to see some of what was going on over there. And my interest was really peaked. Right. And, uh, I mean, so even back in, like, the early 90s, you were starting to get into Japanese wrestling? Right. I never got into the tape trading circuit, so I, I, wasn't, in, I wasn't in with the cool kids back then. So it was a matter of having to save up the obscenely amount of money. If you think about how cheap it is to get, like, a bootleg DVD today, yeah. you'd have to save like 20, 25 bucks to get a VHS of something. So if you're a 12 year old kid, that's, that might be most of your money. So it was a matter of saving up to get the latest Tokyo Dome show or something. Wow. Okay. So, so but basically you were an early starter uh, yeah. as a hardcore, as a hardcore fan. Um, and did you, I mean, so does that mean you had a slightly different relationship with the Monday Night Wars to a, to a lot of fans, or, or were you right in the thick of that as well? Oh, no, I was right in the thick of it. I, I was watching a lot. If, if the, the, that was such a big period. You know, since At that point, it got so popular that my friends were watching, so you would have different friends where maybe they liked WCW more, maybe they liked WF more, but it was fun only because 
it wasn't you sitting at home watching wrestling. It was you could go hang out with your buddies and watch it. And and how about since then? You know the uh, the uh, purchase of WCW, the brand split, and the current kind of John Cena era that we have. Are you uh, still avidly watching Raw every week, and uh, are you into the current product? I've, as, as you may have gotten the vibe when I was talking about how quickly I got turned on to Crockett, I have kind of a real distaste for WWF. I watch it because, hey, they, they have the best presentation, they have largely some of the best workers, and they still do to this day. There's, all, there's fantastic wrestling coming out of that company every week, but I largely can't really deal with their presentation, the backstage skits, the random music cues they get that don't make sense logically. I have a real problem with, with the way they present their show, but I still watch it. Just lots of fast-forwarding. <laughs> what What about TNA? Does that exist in your... I know I know for a lot of wrestling fans, it doesn't even exist in their minds, but uh, what about TNA? I, you know, when it com- it's funny. I, it's not the case with other aspects of my life, but when it comes to wrestling, I'm not particularly militant in my opinions. I'll find the positives in the negatives in everything. Right. So I'm not diehard against it. I don't watch it, but that's really just because I don't have cable. I'm pretty much relying on the internet. And if I'm not missing it, and there's so many other things that I'm falling behind and would rather catch up on, that I've more or less let it go. And is there any real indie scene in that area? Or uh, or not really? Um, there, there is, but not, not a big one. I mean, there's... Um, there's some decent indie wrestling in Reno, which isn't too far from here. APW is still running, but not particularly popular. I did live in Southern California for about three years for graduate school, and I went to more than a handful of PWG shows while I was down there. Chad, you got you got any questions for Sarp before we uh, hit the observers? No, let's. Uh, we can go ahead and dive in. Okay. Well. Well. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, Sarp, and we'll uh, we'll get to know you more over the next couple of hours here. Um, I'm. These are the observers from October 1989, heading into uh, Halloween Havoc. Um, and the biggest news in the October the second uh, edition is that Arn and Tully have handed in their notice to Titan, um, and their last uh, date is going to be the Survivor Series show. And uh, of course, we we know now that uh, Tully was not naked uh, to that show. Um, Dave Meltzer is actually incensed uh, in this particular newsletter over an angle involving the Steiners, uh, Robin Green, and uh, Kevin Sullivan, and two uh, masked black men. <laughs> um, and I, from what I can make out, I haven't actually seen this uh, angle, but um, it seems like Rick Steiner wanted to propose to Robin Green, and then Scott Steiner somehow gets mugged by Kevin Sullivan and these two and these two guys coming out of a limo. And uh, Meltzer is so upset about this that he turned off his TV in disgust, um, and he said that this was far worse than the plastic bag incident which has actually caused a lot of complaints and things over the past few weeks. Now, Sarp, have you, have you seen this? Do you have any memories of this angle? I've seen a little bit of it in, in <laughs> yeah, it's it's fairly troubling. Far, I agree, far more so than the plastic bag. At least the plastic bag, why maybe irresponsible if you have young kid viewers, 
I do think their demographic for for NWA WCW was a little older than WWF. Plus, you can still fall back into the, look, it's a crazed lunatic villain who's trying to commit an act of violence on the baby face. Now, we've seen we've seen uh, people get mugged coming out of limos before. I can think of Lex Luger, for example, getting jumped by the horseman. What's so what's so disgusting about this? Uh, I don't really understand. I mean, the description of it doesn't sound any worse than anything we've seen before. Which we're talking about the Robin Green. I'm talking about the Robin Green incident. Yeah, I think the the gender the gender role and race implications of it are a little troubling. <laughs> Can you just explain what happened uh, exactly? Because I don't really, uh, I don't really understand. Well, the implications I understand, and granted, I haven't watched much of the TV lately. I watched, I did watch the preview show for this pay per view, which did offer some recapping of of the of the rivalry. And from what I understand from how it's presented, is the sweet, lovable, the seemingly sweet, lovable, innocent girl next door turns out to actually be a money and power hungry, non innocent woman who has no interest in marrying the sweet, nice, lovable Rick Steiner because she's actually being, I don't know, I guess it's implied as being serviced by two large African Americans. <laughs> right, okay. So uh, the implication in terms of sociological perspective, um, gender roles is a little troubling. Right. Okay. And, and that's the reason that Meltz, because, I mean, it seems to me that Meltz are turned off because of the I couldn't really make out why he was so disgusted by it. It just seemed like any other wrestling angle to me. But um, yeah, I can see what you're driving at. Um, but and there's, I mean, there's on top of just the the sexual and racial overtones. It's just the it was kind of really bad television, and maybe also offensive towards um, various forms of mentally handicapped people because you have these two people. There's all they've always written that line with Rick Steiner. Is he? mentally troubled, has he just been dropped on his head a few too many times, as Scott has implied in promos. So they're, you're having these skits of the two of them going out on dates together, and you're not really sure exactly what the character is supposed to be. Is he just different, or what? Right, and it, was there anything particularly violent about the beatdown as well? Like, on top of all of that? Not that I remember. Okay, so, I mean, the... the, the the worst part of it is that it was just bad TV more than anything else. Yeah, right. I don't think the beatdown was anything particularly bad. It, that seems to me like he's got Kevin Sullivan booking all over it. Uh, given that he's directly involved and that he was part of this booking committee, seems like a yeah. Good. And it's his wife. I imagine he had strong creative control over that. Right. So, in other news, um, Missy Hyatt will no longer be appearing on TV for reasons that are not disclosed, and she will no longer be appearing next to the Steiners, um, and that Eddie Gilbert is going to be phased out. So that's the major news from the uh, October the 2nd. October the 9th newsletter, um, Arn and Tully are going to be heading back to the NWA, it seems. Um, Dick Slater's gone to Japan until Starcade um, on a tour. On screen, Terry Funk's suspension has been lifted, uh, and presumably he got suspended for the plastic bag incident, right? That that would have been uh, in the storyline. There, he would have been uh, suspended for that. Yeah, I watched a little bit of the TV around the, that era tonight and, and yesterday, and yeah, he was suspended for that briefly. And poorly, dangerously, has left the promotion 
Um, but I couldn't really find any details why he's left the promotion. But the biggest news uh, for that uh, particular week, N NBA uh, NWA wise, is that TBS have uh, have issued a, um, a kind of diktat that no more blood or unnecessary violence is to be on wrestling TV. Um, it's going to be allowed in the pay-per-view, but but not on TV. Um, then on October the 16th, even more about this plastic bag incident um, and the Steiner mugging skit. They, they, both of those created a lot of uh, complaints and things for TBS um, and didn't go down too well with the mainstream public. And uh, they're also at odds with the mainstream kind of values that TBS is trying to promote at this time. And since they own NWA, um, they can actually control what they do. And then Meltzer kind of debates this at length. Uh, it goes on about the mainstream audience and the hardcore audience and how far is too far. Um, that's a, I guess it's an ongoing debate. Anybody, do you guys have any particularly strong views of this? I, I guess we're in a time right now in wrestling where we've gone, what do they call it, the PG era? Is that what they're, they're calling right. it now? Um, do you have any particularly strong views on, you know, violence, blood, in wrestling? Um, I mean, I certainly don't have a problem with blood or violence <laughs> in, uh, in my wrestling. I think it enhances in a lot of ways. And, uh, I mean, I guess the last example right off the top of my head I can think about is maybe the Daniel Bryan incident where he, uh, choked Justin Roberts with his tie and he was fired for that. So, it uh, does seem that kind of strangling or uh, choking type incidents are still taken pretty seriously nowadays. Right, and Saab, you any particularly strong views on uh, on on violence and wrestling? I mean, I uh, three quick points. One, I'm glad you brought up the thing about. I guess they suddenly said they shouldn't have blood on TV because. I was, as I was watching, getting prepared for tonight, I was watching the Gary Hart International Comp, and there's a Dick Slater, Ric Flair match from TV, and after watching a considerable amount of blood in this feud, I was surprised that Flair juices in that match, and they they um, blur it whenever there's close-ups of them. I thought that was strange. So they did put that into effect on TV. Um, yeah, I've always thought it's strange that certain things will get singled out as being over the line, whether it's the example that Chad just brought up with Daniel Bryan choking the guy with the top with, with, with the tie or Terry Funk with the plastic bag, but yet Triple H gets to swing around a sledgehammer with reckless abandon and nobody cares. <laughs> Infinitely more lethal than a plastic bag or a tie. I, you know, I, I've, always had a, I've always had a problem with that sledgehammer because um, <laughs> he doesn't swing it like a sledgehammer. He does that stupid thing where he holds it by the head and then does that fake looking kind of I'm going to knock you with it yeah it's move. it's beyond frustrating I mean there's a reason why a chair has always been the reasonable weapon to use it's readily available at ringside and it's something you can use and it not be necessarily lethal theoretically Yeah. on the subject of blood I'm a little conflicted, especially having recently watched the Nigel McGuinness documentary. So the the educated side of me, it, educated side of me, is a little conflicted about 
if it's responsible to have something, they're just going to have people bleeding and dumping DNA all over the ring. On the other hand, as a wrestling fan, there are there there aren't many things I enjoy more than blood and wrestling. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, all you know, the three of us here would be on the uh, more on the hardcore spectrum. You know, as wrestling fans, do you, do you think there is an argument that if you're trying to make a mainstream promotion as the NWA or TBS clearly were at this point that you do have to tone it down um, I mean we did talk about this last week a little bit Chad uh, do you go after your core audience all the time or do you try to go after that you know the casual fan uh, and where do you where do you strike that balance I, I mean I think that's a constant issue they have to do but I, I mean I don't think there's ever been any evidence that uh you know because they didn't have blood that somebody didn't become a wrestling fan i mean i just can't see any evidence from the the most popular times in wrestling have had blood even the rock and wrestling era and the of course the attitude era were both uh filled with blood so that's that's true I, I, i also think about uh you know, those Mid-South shows that were getting like 20,000 people uh, at the Superdome and things, that was a famously violent promotion, right? And there were plenty of people turning up to those shows too. So, um, Okay. Uh, in other news, um, Paulie Dangerously, Missy Hyatt and Eddie Gilbert are all technically still under contract with the NWA. Um, and Meltzer says that one of the things that this shows is that the WWF are now scared of trying to sign guys who are under contract because they haven't tried to sign either of these, any of these three people. Um, I, I actually thought Paulie stuck around, Chad. Is he there in 1990 or is he gone? Well, yeah, he comes back in 1990. Um, I mean, I know at the very beginning he's with the uh, ICW stuff right? Uh, in New York, the New York Indie promotion. Uh, but, but, you know, by the first, uh, probably by March or April of 1990, he's back in uh, WCW, and he'll pretty much ride that until he moves on to his uh, ECW stuff. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought he came back pretty soon. Um, okay. And I still, I still can't. I mean, I don't know if I missed it uh, in one of the previous uh, newsletters, but I, I couldn't find the precise details of why. Paulie's uh, got because he was on a pretty decent run. I couldn't really see any reason for him to go, so there, there must have been some issue there. Um, if anybody does know, uh, let us know. I, I don't suppose you know uh, Sarp off the top of your head. No, I don't. Um, uh, Ricky Steamboat is suing the NWA for, uh, because they're still putting his image on posters, um, and in fact they're promoting show on the 28th of October um, still with Steamboat's Im- image image on it so he's decided that he wants to sue them um, and someone tried to stab Brian Pillman's girlfriend uh, around this time but thankfully she was physically unharmed by the attack October the 23rd Dick Slater's not coming back after all um, he's going to stay in Japan uh, and he will be replaced by the Dragon Master um, in uh, in the J Tex Corporation. 
Uh, and that's the fake Kenno Nagasaki, right? Dragon Master. Yeah. I, I've seen a bit of him on the uh, 90 yearbook chat. I, I'm not particularly big fan of his. Yeah, I mean, his his run is uh, pretty short here, so I mean, not very impressive. So we'll get to him in one of the clashes coming up, but that's about it. Um, October 30th, and there's a big issue now in NWA as the bookers and the management are completely at odds. Uh, the bookers are resentful of the fact um, that uh, of, of the recent mandates, basically the management have been putting on them. Um, and there's this big thing that all of the bookers are wrestling people at this point, and they think that the uh, execs just don't understand wrestling. Uh, but he also says that there's a problem with uh, wrestlers because they tend to assume that anybody who's not a wrestling person is a mark. Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, I guess the conventional wisdom is is that you leave the wrestling to the wrestling guys and keep out of it, right? Um, but this issue is going this issue is not going to go away where WCW is concerned, as we as we're all aware. Um, it's interesting to see it happen this early, though. I guess. I mean, we're we're, we're barely a year into the Turner era here, and it's already uh, it's already become a thing. And finally, Doom debuted, and uh, in in some places, and apparently everybody knew who they were, according to Meltzer, and he says that some fans laughed at them because their mask didn't look very good. And yeah, that I think that was a pretty uh, pretty badly kept secret on who uh, <laughs> who was actually under the hood there. Right. And finally, uh, the NWA have hired a guy called Chris Cruz, who's uh, got a CNN background and also did some stuff with the Armed Forces News, and uh, and we see him tonight. And uh, Meltzer seems impressed by his voice. So more on Chris Cruz in a second. Let's uh, let's get on to the show then. Uh, Halloween Havoc '89. We're in Philadelphia at the Civic Center, and the date is. It's not October the 31st, is it? It's October the. No, it's the uh, 28th. The 28th, yeah. Well, that would have been the show that they were promoting Steamboat for. <laughs> Our hosts are Jim Ross and Bob Coddle. <laughs> Coddle back again. Um, and there's a cage hanging above the ring, which we're told pretty quickly is the Thunderdome. Um. So you 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 specifically chose this uh, card card uh, Saab just before we go in. Uh, any particular reason is this a special card for you in some way? Yeah, it's it's a personal favorite of mine. It always has been. Um, it's one I remember getting from very, being very excited. I went from the video store back in that time, and I was like I mentioned earlier, I was a huge fan of this feud. I was a huge fan of WCW at the time. Um, and as a kid, I thought it was cool as shit. And yeah, I got in the habit of watching this show every Halloween, especially since most of the Halloween Havocs that followed it weren't as good. So this is your this is your favorite Halloween Havoc. I, we all know Chad's is ninety one, right, Chad? Is, is I act, I'm actually uh, high. I, I don't like all these Halloween Havocs now. Uh, as I stated right before we went on air, I've never seen this show except the main event. 
but uh, Halloween Havoc as a show and a concept is something I really wish they would use now in WWE because I think it's a really cool kind of theme show and uh, probably one of the best usages of themes that WCW did as they always had kind of a special look. Uh, the show had kind of a special look. 1990 had a special look. Um, so uh, I've always really liked the Halloween Havoc concept. It's probably actually, uh, I, I would say overall, it's probably my favorite WCW pay-per-view concept. In Starcade and concept would be the uh, my favorite WCW pay per view. But as we'll discuss as we go through the Star Arcade, they really kind of butchered uh, making that show special with some of the dumb stuff they did throughout the years. So Halloween Havoc probably consistently is my favorite WCW pay per view. Is this actually the first Halloween Havoc? Was there a Havoc at yet? I can't remember now. No, this is the first one. This, this is the very first one, right? Yeah, this is the first one. Yep. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as a as a first uh, shot at Halloween Havoc, uh, this wasn't bad in terms of theming and production and stuff. I thought it was pretty good. We, we get um, taken now to Christopher Cruz. Um, and my first note here is, can you guess it? <laughs> He's no Sean Mooney. <laughs> Just... So, well, what, what I don't know if that's a bad or a good thing. <laughs> what, what, what is this Chris Cruz? How, how long does he stay around? Yeah, I mean, I know he did uh, some of the, like, worldwide stuff. I actually think he hangs around for a little bit longer than that. But yeah. uh, he, he's kind of, he actually gets replaced by Scott Hudson. And uh, that's kind of the same type role person sort of as a secondary announcer really. Yeah, I think he was around for the B shows. Right, well, right. And how, what sort of time frame are we are we looking here? I would say up to uh probably like 93 or so. Wow. Oh, well, the, uh, it's clear I I mean we didn't get uh we got worldwide here, but uh, I never saw Chris Cruz uh crop up on that. It was always, um, I guess we always got the 18. Um, okay, but still, I maintain, I mean, he is no Sean Mooney. <laughs> um, but he is kind of the closest we get to a Sean Mooney in uh, WCW here, uh, I'd argue. He's a guy who doesn't have a wrestling background, he's got legit broadcast background, and he's in wrestling for about four or five years. I mean, that's as, close as, that's as close to Sean Mooney as you can get. Anyway, let's go into our first match here. Um, and uh, as this started, I honestly thought this has the potential to be awful. It's uh, everybody's favorite, Mike Rotunda, versus everybody's second favorite, the Z-Man. What were you thinking when this uh, match started, Chad? They certainly lived up or uh, didn't live up to even those very minimal expectations in my eyes. So Rotunda is still in his uh, varsity club gear here, but he's uh, sporting uh, like an afro or a perm, which is a look that we haven't seen from him. Uh, still not in the captain gear. He, he actually sticks around in varsity club stuff for much longer than, uh, than I thought. Um, and it's actually going to be a little sad. Like The varsity club hasn't been around for 
what, like four or five months now, and he's still kind of an overhang wearing varsity club stuff? <laughs> yeah, they even uh, bring that up in commentary where, I mean, Rotunda right now kind of feels like a man without an island as he's still wearing the gear of this gimmick that uh, has obviously went by the wayside, so it's kind of strange. Yeah. It, it, it's up, uh, Mike Rotunda. Not a popular guy on the boards. Uh, what's your view of him? This is this is sort of the the varsity club rotunda is basically the only incarnation of rotunda that I can stomach, and even that's not outstanding. But this is probably the tail end of my favorite version of him. Right. What well, he did he does. I mean, us watching these shows earlier on in eight, eighty nine, he has a really hot little streak there with uh with the Rick Steiner feud. Like I thought he had some good matches and performances during that, but he seems to have uh, tapered off again. Um, as the Z-Man is introduced, there is audible heel heat for him, uh, and we're told he's undefeated going into this match. Um, and, I mean, it's fair to say the Philly crowd were not fans of Tom Zink. Um And, to be honest, they felt like they were shitting on this, even before it started. Um, but somehow it turned around into the right kind of heat, I guess, because we did get a big Syracuse sucks chant, unless I was hearing it wrong. So they were kind of trying to rile Rotunda up. Um, so, uh, it's safe to say I didn't think of this, much of this match, but what did you think, Chad? Yeah, this was a... Uh, a Quite frankly, a terrible match. Um, it, it, it meandered around. Uh, Zinc is somebody they keep trying to present as this up and coming, uh, up and comer, exciting baby face. Really, uh, probably they're pushing him at this point as a young upstart baby face as much as we've seen since someone like Sting. And, uh, he's just, he's just not connecting. Uh, he's unfocused here. Rotunda doesn't add anything, and and he feels kind of in a big transition stage. Uh, so I thought this was really bad overall, uh, and 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 really long. I mean, it was 13 minutes. Zinc eventually picks up the victory, but uh, not a, not a good opener for the first match in Halloween Havoc history. Sop. Yeah, I mean. For- before we get into the match, on Zinc, just on Zinc, from a blueprint blueprint perspective, I get it. He's a, a handsome enough guy. He's for nineteen eighty nine. He's got a good look to him. I can see why. In the guys in the back would have thought, "Hey, we got to push this kid." They were in the, obviously in the middle of pushing new faces with the dynamic dudes, with Sid Vicious, with Brian Pillman, with Scott Steiner. There's a huge influx of new fresh talents, and they thought Zinc would be sort of the um, lower card version of Pillman, I guess. Not quite as great, not quite as exciting, but a, a real shot in the arm for the undercard. And he's just dull as shit. Yeah. He just is. I mean, he's a perfectly yeah, serviceable yeah. guy. He's not like he's bad in the ring. He knows how to do it. But he doesn't bring anything to the table. I mean, to top it off, my biggest complaint of the match is it doesn't even have a good finish. If nothing else, I would have thought Zink would have maybe boring matches, but at least a cool finish. The only thing he has is he's got the theme music from Batman. That's the only exciting thing about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I have to agree. I mean, they took way too long to start this match. There was a lot of stalling and um, not interesting stalling. Like, 
you know... Rotundo stalling. It's Rotunda stalling, right. Um, so it was really dull. Um, and then we get... Uh, so d- what happens in matches like this, which are incredibly dull, like not a lot going on. I mean, I, I've just written here, abdominal stretch followed by reverse chin lock. You know, it, like you get a lot of the standard rotunda spots with the, um, you know, where he's uh, grabbing the, the rope for leverage. Uh, right, and it's not like it's New Japan where he's doing these normal wrestling holds with a certain degree of torque where you where you feel like that he might it might result in something. No, right. So, <laughs> what, what, what I was going to say is that doing matches like this, which are dull, nothing much is going on, standard kind of wrestling holds applied boringly, um, you you then look towards the commentary team to try to get you through it. You know, these are the sorts of matches where a, where a Bobby Heenan or a Jesse Ventura kind of helps you get through things. But here, <laughs> Bob Coddle, my favourite, uh, really started bugging me with his cookie-cutter platitudes, saying things like, this young man has got a great career ahead of him. Uh, I, wrote down, I wrote down a few of uh, Coddle's uh, comments during this match. You can't teach speed, Jim, is one of the things that he said. <laughs> Like such great insight from him. Um, th- th- another little thing that bugged me during this match was um, was uh, you know that rope spot that Rotunda does where you know he's grabbing onto the rope for leverage. They did that thing with uh, Nick Patrick. He kept on checking the ropes as they were wobbling, and they went back to it, and then went back to it again, and finally they um, they erupted. Like I can imagine matches where that might be fun, but here it just came across as really kind of goofy and pantomime and. I don't know. It was all horrible for me. Um, yeah, the announcing is it's the announcing is like the uh, the equivalent of the the baseball interview where where you get the generic interview of a baseball player and, and no matter what their answer is always, yeah, we got to just take them one day at a time. <laughs> you guys have that in your sports too. Uh, yeah, the generic responses you got that too. <laughs> in, in football, uh, fo- there's an old joke about football managers. They only ever speak in platitudes. So, or, or even football players. So they say things like, "Well, you know, it, it's a game of two halves, and come what may, <laughs> <laughs> come what may, you know, the side who wins will be the one who scores the most goals." And that's the end of the interview. <laughs> right. You get a lot of that in baseball. The, the only thing I would say, just on this match, the only positive I would say is what you've already touched on: the um, the, the heat from the crowd, the heat from the crowd, make it enjoyable. From just shitting on zinc. <laughs> Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, they. They. The, 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 let's talk about the finish a little bit. I've just written here uh, that there's a very sloppy-looking roll-through. Uh, very. What, what, what actually happened? Um, was it, it uh, Zenk comes off the top? Uh, no. Uh, it's 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 Rotunda does a uh, a cross body to Zenk from the uh, middle rope, and uh, Zinc basically rolls it through to get the pinfall. And at the clash, didn't he win with a non-threatening-looking sleeper hold? Yeah, he did. So this is, again, he, I don't know. I mean, we talked about kind of at the clash show, the sleeper is not exactly a great finish to begin with, so they may have been scrapping that and looking for 
something else for him. But uh, this this was kind of like a flash finish, which after 13 minutes of action uh, uh, didn't feel very satisfactory either. One more thing I forgot to mention is that his comeback, Zeng's comeback, was just lacked any type of fire at all. I, I mean, I, I said a couple of weeks ago that he's a he's a poor man's uh, uh, Rick Martel. I actually, I actually think that's doing a disservice to Rick Martel because his comeback here was just—it's just woeful, really poor. He's a poor man's Robert Gibson, <laughs> and, and you see that in the Pillman Zeng tag team matches. He's a poor man's Robert Gibson. He's got a little bit better look, but he's not as great of a worker. He's—and he, you see where he's positioned on the card. He, if nothing else, have an exciting finish. Okay. <laughs> Right, so uh, safe to say none of us were fans of that match, and uh, I, I thought it went, what, like 15 minutes for that? Yeah, it was like 13 minutes long, so uh, way, way too long. So, uh, we go over to Chris Cruz now. Oh, let me just check the uh, Meltzer rating. Three quarters of a star for him. Um, the last two minutes were good anyway, says Meltzer. Were they? Okay. Um, no, the best part of the match is when uh, Zink takes a tumble all the way to the aisle and the crowd pops because they're happy to see him get hurt. <laughs> I, can I just say this? Uh, the, the crowd already uh, in contention for MV, MVP for the very first time with me. Uh, I, I was <laughs> quite a fan of this crowd, as we'll see going forward. Um, Chris Cruz is with Bruno Sammartino. Topical. Mm -hmm. Uh, why why is it topical, folks? Well, uh, Bruno has, I guess, put away some grudges and uh, is going to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, which is something he's pretty much been vowing against to anybody that'll listen for for uh, years. So, kind of interesting. Any any reaction to that, Chad? You're actually going to wrestle me. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I am, and uh, I mean, it's something that, I mean, I know for me, Bruno, of course, he was before my time, uh, so I, I know I don't have the uh, emotional impact that some people have, but I mean, I do think it's very cool that essentially in, you know, WWF history from the 70s, everybody has kind of made up or made good uh, during this era. You know, and pretty much from, I guess, about 1987 or so, uh, Bruno has been disconnected. So to see him come back after 26 years uh, to do this, I'm sure it's going to be a pretty cool moment. Yeah, do you think the same, uh, Sarp? You got any uh, particular memories of Bruno? <laughs> Um, well, like we were talking about my Genesis a wrestling fan, I quickly became more of a Crockett fan, and, and I was a little young, to, and I kind of missed the Bruno era, so I didn't have an attachment to him growing up, and when I did go back and watch a lot of stuff, I thought it was boring and guilty of a lot of things I didn't like about WWF. In hindsight, as an older wrestling fan, digging deeper, listening to a lot of his outstanding interviews on, on Wrestling Observer Live, I, then I've, I've become more of a fan of at least of him as, as an individual. Right. Well, uh, here he's wearing a ref shirt uh, because he is refing the upcoming Thunderdome match. Um, and he, he says some things uh, in his Italian accent. 
I guess a, a t Italian New York accent is not really. It's just like a proper Italian accent. Bruno yeah, actually from it. I mean, he's he's Italian. He had to uh, he fled during like World War Two, so right, yeah. he, Italian heritage, which should do well in Philly. He 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 is also a contender, of course, for worst ever commentator. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Any of you fans of uh, Bruno uh, Bruno in the booth? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, well, that's actually kind of surprising um, that he never translated very well uh, to commentary because, like Sarp said, his interviews are are excellent. Uh, and he's very uh, introspective, like in his uh, Wrestling Observer interviews, has a great mind, is able to go into detail, and uh, even telling his stories, they're very descriptive and interesting, so I don't know why it never kind of translate. I mean, the most I've associated him with commentary is with uh, Abrams UWF. So he, he didn't have a lot to work with there from a talent or production standpoint, but uh, it was pretty bad. I'm going to speculate that maybe it's that disconnect that some people have of getting themselves over versus getting something else that you're watching over, which oh, is yeah. probably the reason why Flair being another example, one of the great interviews of all time, and yet has never really found that niche as like a great manager or a great effective commentator. Because right. it's it's one thing to be great at getting you over, it's another thing to be great at getting somebody else over. Yeah, I I, I can agree with that. That's a good point. Yeah, I I'd, I'd also agree with that. Um, yeah, he he's not much better with Vince uh, in the uh, early eighties there either. If you've seen any of that stuff. Um, so the, the second match here, the Midnight Express still faces at this point with uh, with Jim Cornette and Steve Williams mm -hmm. against the Samoan SWAT team with the Samoan Samit, Savage, a.k.a. Tonga Kid, or the other one of the Islanders, the one who wasn't Haku, um, with Oliver Humperdinck, also known as the Big Kahuna. So clearly Humperdinck stepping into a poorly spot here. Um, we've talked about Humperdinck uh, before a bit, didn't we, Chad? I, I, I've never got him. I don't, I, I don't understand his deal at all. He's he's never uh, he's never someone I've been a a fan of. Obviously, uh, as I helped compile the uh, place to be manager list, he didn't even rank there, and we had people like Sonny on uh, on that list. So uh, he's never somebody that I've held in high regard at all. So, Sop, you. Uh any do you do you like Oliver Humperdinck? <laughs> nope, this is probably about as good as it gets. Right. Him right here tonight, and he doesn't do much. Um, well, at least he's a heel here. That's one of my major complaints about him. I, I, I do I do not like uh, the concept of a face manager a lot of the time. There's very few who can pull it off. You know, Liz I think is the is the big exception. Uh, I, I guess Paul Paul Bearer as well when he was Undertaker's manager. Um, so. Oh, he, yeah, also Tonga Kid. It's the first time we're seeing him, I think. Um, n not a bad worker uh, in from his Islanders days. I, he, this is the right guy, isn't it? He, he, he was... Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is Tama from uh, from the Islanders. Yeah, I mean, he, he's not a, you know, not a bad worker. Certainly uh, has never gotten the rep that, like, Haku would get. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's pretty serviceable. So, um, 
as this match starts, uh, Jim Cornette gets on the mic and he makes a Hurricane Hugo reference, um, which I'm I'm guessing ha- Hurricane Hugo. Did that that happen a few weeks before this? I think. Jim Ross mentions here that Arn and Tully uh, lost a match. So interesting that he'd mentioned them on air at this point. Uh, do you think that was a kind of just a dig, or do you think it was a kind of bid to get them to come to the NWA at this point? Um, I I would think it's partly Ross kind of bringing in the history of the Midnight Express on the tag titles, and uh, also partly kind of a reintroduction of Arn and Tully uh, back to the fans, because uh, it sounds like they were pretty much uh, geared up to come back in together. Um, the, the other thing, uh, just before we, before we get into this match, is that it seems like the story with Oliver Humperdinck here is that um, he has regressed the Samoan SWAT team back to their tribal state, according to Jim Ross. Um, so, they're even wilder than they were before. <laughs> Um, and the one, the one other thing that I noted down uh, before we get we get into this is that as this match starts, <laughs> uh, Jim Ross says, "Well, Bob, I'm very partial to Doctor Death," um, which made me laugh a little bit because I've always thought that, um, you know, if Jim Ross ever turned gay, it would be for Steve Williams. All right. So- can you pick a can you pick a prettier man to go gay for than Doctor Death? Steve Williams. I mean. <laughs> All right. Well, what did you? Uh, the uh, Philly crowd were definitely into Doctor Death. I'll, I'll say that. But Sarp, what do you think of this match? Uh, well, well, first off, before we get to the actual match, one thing you're going to hear me go on and on about a lot is the entrances. And if you're watching the WWE 24/7 version, you're going to miss out on the entrances. And please go find a non 24/7 version because WWE is using great pop songs for entrance music and some of the best usage of that was tonight here um you got the well i guess it's not a pop song but we'll get more of that later um the yes the simone swat team come out to the theme from halloween which is great for this show and it looks maybe it's just because i was a kid at the time but it looks really creepy they got the fire torches and they're tossing them back and forth and it's just they seem they were a little scary at least if you're like 10 11 years old they're a little scary and it, very effective at getting them over as a threatening heel band of savages. Yeah. So you're going to hear me reference the music a few times. <laughs> they, they look pretty uh, kick-ass, too, the three of them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how about the match? I mean, what, what do you think? The, the match is great. The match is awesome. It's got a couple miscues here and there. I think a lot of them late in the game from Simone Savage. Now, I'm not going to single him out because he also does some fantastic stuff in here, but I think he got a little blown up at the end, and there's a couple miscues. Um, it's a great use of Dr. Death, who I've always been a fan of, but I think it took him a little while in his career before he was good at being able to take part in a singles match without being led by somebody very competent. He's, because he's very physical, he's, he's very well served in a tag setting where he can just come in and as a hot tag and beat the dog shit out of people as he does here a couple times. It's a great use of people. It's mainly structured around almost all Bobby Eaton doing some outstanding offense and then being the face in peril for a great section of the match where he takes some 
incredible bumps, including a hip toss in the aisle, which has no padding on it, where I would have thought his hip shattered. Great stuff. Great match. The Midnight are super over in Philly. It's good stuff. Chad? Yeah, I, I thought this was a really fun uh, kind of six-man tag. I agree that the uh, Samoan Savage was probably the weakest of the uh, SST in this match. And uh, I, I want to commend Bobby Eaton because I thought uh, Bobby Eaton was really amazing in this match. He uh, he takes a, a, a nasty hip toss right to the concrete floor, which makes a terrible splat sound. And him and Samu especially had some great exchanges. So overall, I thought this was a uh, just a really fun match and kind of continued the string of the Midnight Express in 1989 as baby faces of not necessarily having great matches, but uh, all the matches they've been in have been pretty fun. So I enjoyed this a good deal. Yeah, I, I've actually really, really liked this uh, face run from the Midnight Express um, uh, a fair bit, actually. Um I thought that uh, there were lot there were lots of things to like about this match. I thought the uh, shine sequence at the start was very effective at getting um, uh, Doctor Death over as the kind of um, the kind of the danger man for the for the face team, um, and he was on pretty good form in general. Uh, he was working quite stiff. He was like rough and ready. Um, uh, his clotheslines all looked pretty good. Um, then. Uh, Bob Eaton's punches were amazing in, in that early portion of the match. Um, Samu looked good again. As he's, I mean, Samu's looked pretty good all, all the way through the uh, the SST's uh, run. Um, the Samoan Samage uh, looked like a step quicker than the other SST members. Uh, he was quite agile, although, like you said, Sarp, he did have a couple of uh, wobbly moments. Um, yeah, so there's a punch in the gut that he sells like a punch to the head, which is twice as funny since he's Samoan and the um, the wrestling culture is supposedly that he's not supposed to be hit in the head or hurt in the head. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I've got I've got a uh, holy shit uh, for the um, for the hip toss on the concrete and the and the horrible splat that Eaton takes. I think it's Fatu who gives him that uh, hip toss. That was an amazing uh, moment. Um, the face in power sequence on Eaton is uh, really good, and all three Samoans are you know, pretty decent on uh, an offense. There we get a side slam by uh, the Samoan Savage, um, and then I thought Steve Williams was actually pretty great on the hot tag at the end. The crowd went wild for it. Uh, he get, gives us a scoop power slam, um, and one of the better performances from Steve uh, Williams in a while. But I, the big note I've got here, uh, which neither neither of you have really picked up on, um, is that I thought Stan Lane really felt like the a bit like the weak link in this match. Uh, he, he has a pretty bad neck breaker at one point. His kicks are looking weaker than ever. Um, yeah, and I, I actually thought that if anybody was bringing, uh, it wasn't really pulling their weight in this match. It was Stan Lane. Any thoughts on? Lane here? I think he was hurt at the time. Was he? I want to say, because I, I think I was looking at the the Jim Cornette Midnight Express book when I was watching the show, and I think it mentioned that around the time he, he was banged up a little. 
Right, it, it, it may explain why he he's not in this match a great deal. But when he is in it, he he, he doesn't do a lot. Did you notice that chat at all, or not really? Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely Eaton takes most of the match, and uh, Williams gets kind of the big comeback. So Lane was kind of hidden for the majority of this match. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't think that what he did was kind of actively bad. I definitely, like I said, I think the Samoan Savage was the worst person in the match, but, yeah, I mean, it's, he was probably the fifth out of the six, so. I also thought the finish was a little bit weird. Um, why would bumping onto Cornette's tennis racket knock you out there? I mean, I, even in wrestling logic, it didn't look very believable to me um, that that would be something that would knock Stan Lane out cold. Well, theoretically, the, the racket is supposed to be loaded, right? Right, okay. So, well, he hit his head on, like, whatever he's got in there, like a horseshoe or something. Right. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of the finish more, but I, I thought it was fine. My problem with it is, as we'll get to later, it was kind of replicated a few times. But since it's the first time we're watching it, I didn't really have an issue with it. And while I'm not sure what the episodic TV was at the time, I know they're kind of building towards Cornette having to decide who he's going to go with between his two teams, this and the dudes. So if you wanted to lay the groundwork for a little bit of a dissension between him and his team that he'd been with for several years, then that was a good spot. Yeah, I, I did think that they may be teasing something here a little, a little bit with that. Um, major talking point I've got here. Well, I don't know how major it is, but I've just written, why are Samoans so prone to gain weight? Um, I mean, Fatu at this point has already, I'd say, gained about 30 pounds since we've first started seeing him Chad like he he is visibly like fatter than he was six months ago um since his Islanders days I'd say the Samoan Savage has probably put on about 70 pounds if not more um what's what's the deal with Samoans and just becoming larger and larger as they get older obviously a Fatu ends up being Rikishi right so um and we know that Yokozuna was a Samoan. I mean, is that is it just something like Samoans are all like big people because they all have that kind of thick, uh, thick kind of backside as well. I mean, I mean, I don't want to speak out of line and say anything offensive, but I mean, I, I think I have a fairly good understanding of this. Being from the Bay Area, there's a massive Polynesian population here, and just they value being big. That's that's. That's what you should strive to be. Is you should keep growing and growing and growing. Right. So it's in the it's actually in the culture then. To, right. As I, as I understand it, I don't. I hope I'm not wrong. Okay. I I was just interested by that because uh, I mean it could be a family thing because obviously all these guys are in the same family, right? Right. Uh, I want to say I was watching a match with the Usos not too long ago and JBL straight up says, "Oh, these guys are just getting started. Even though they're full grown men, they're going to both pack on at least fifty pounds over their career." All right. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, Gordon Soley is with Gary Hart and Terry Funk here, um, and Gary Hart said something that really confused me quite a lot. He said, "Tonight we're going to see, finally going to get to see Mr. J of JTEX." So all the way through the main event, I was exp I was waiting for Mr. J to turn up. Um, was he talking about? Great Muta, like what was he on about? Who's Mr. J? 
I, I have no idea. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he, what he was kind of alluding with. I don't even know what the J and JTEX uh, stands for. So Japan, J- Japan. It's Japan, right? Oh, okay. Right, hence the Muda. That's song. right. Yeah, J- that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I guess maybe the true Muda. I, I don't know. Sharp, did you even get these promos on the twenty four seven version? Um, yeah, and plus, plus I downloaded and, and I'm watching the, the non-24-7 version. And I, of course, had seen the non-24-7 version numerous times as a kid. So, yeah, I got the promos. Um, none of the promos really stood out as anything outstanding. Um, I, yeah, Mr. J is, that, that's, no, J stood for Japan. I don't get it. Right. So I was expecting to see the debut of Dragon Master or something. I think um, we did. I think Dragon Master did come out along with Muda and Gary Hart, but they just didn't acknowledge it. They, they and then when he comes out with Muda and Hart, like the following week on TV, then they acknowledge it as if it's the first time it happened. Weird. Very. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that later, because I, I, I thought there was somebody else there as well, but they completely no-sold it on commentary. Um, Funk says uh, that they're going to start a new dance craze, the 10,000-watt boogie. Um, and we learn that the Thunderdome has an ele- elect- um, electrocated fence. So, uh, more of that to come later. But now, it's the Cuban Assassin versus Wildfire Tommy Rich. Um, so, first of all, a pay-per-view match for the Cuban Assassin. It's a bit of a surprise. Um, and Jim Ross mentions that Tommy Rich is back from relative obscurity. Um, where was Tommy Rich between 1981 and 1989? What was he up to? Spent a lot of time in Memphis. Is that relative obscurity? I guess. <laughs> is that, I mean... A lot of time in Memphis. I'm sure he popped up a few other places along the way, but he was in and out of Memphis for a lot of runs. Yeah, had some Japan... All Japan stuff. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of around. He was just mostly, I guess, maybe not on the national. Yeah, I I guess what Ross is getting at here is that uh, he's not in the big two, right? He he hasn't been with uh, NWA or WF in in that period. Okay, well, a couple of things going into this match. Um, First of all... uh, Jim Ross mentions uh, that the Cuban assassin uh, used to be called Fidel, and um, Coddle just kind of mumbled and grumbled in the background, which uh, I thought was quite funny, as if the very mention of the name Fidel would uh, would be like a kind of flesh wound to somebody like Bob Coddle. Uh, that amused me quite a lot. And the other thing is that um, the Philly crowd started a rather large Tommy Rich sucks chant. Did you guys hear that? Yes. Um, I thought that was a little bit harsh. I've just written no here in my notes because uh, I, I like Tommy Rich. And, uh, it's a shame for, the, for them to be uh, on his back here for, for no real uh, reason. Um, then we get a loud boring chant. And to be fair, there is quite a long armbar by the Cuban assassin going on. Um, and the two little notes here is that they gave this match quite a long time considering who was involved um, and also a lot of this match is the Cuban assassin on offense he even gets a suplex in at one point 
Um, so, yeah, and then we get Thez Press for the Pin Out of Nowhere by Tommy Rich, a very awkward looking Thez Press. So, is it, uh, Sarp, uh, any thoughts on this one? Um, it, it was fine. It wasn't good, but it was fine. I'm not going to vilify the performers for the booking. Like, I mean, as you've revealed from going through these shows, for whatever reason, they like putting extended squashes on some of these shows. The worst example, of course, being that one Clash of Champions where you had, like, 12-minute Italian Stallion Dr. Death extended <laughs> squash. I mean, if you want to put a squash, go ahead and make it an effective one where you get your unit talent over effectively. Here, it's just sort of a, you know Tommy Rich is going to win, but you also know you're not pushing him, so it's just sort of a filler. This is the equivalent of a Divas match. Um, it's better than the first match because Rich is a better performer than Tom Zink, and I'm not, I'm not going to say Assassin's better than Rotunda. Maybe they're about even because, like you said, Assassin does have a couple nice bits of offense. Nice suplex, a nice high flying knee at one point. It's it shouldn't be on the show, but I'm not going to vilify them for it. it. It's it's a divas match. Chad, yeah, I didn't think this was a was very good. Uh, too long for an extended squash. Uh, Tommy Rich, I didn't think looked particularly good in this match after a good performance he had at the Clash with uh, Luger. So. Not a lot to say about this, but uh, I was actually a little disappointed, uh, especially in Rich's performance. I, uh, with Rich, I would say, if I can jump in real quick, uh, he's a guy who was really hot and red hot when he was young and perceived as really good looking to that to his crowd and his audience, particularly in and around Georgia. After his look started going, he was still an outstanding performer, but he was far better served as a heel, and he really would have been great as just a nice undercard heel here. Yeah. Um, I I I possibly agree that he uh, some sort of heel turn would have would have would have done him good at this point. Him uh, and Eddie Gilbert were doing a little bit of a tag team at this time, and while you read in the Observer that Eddie was gone, but he was right back on TV in a couple of weeks. So I think it was probably just an Eddie Gilbert personality issue. It would much better served if that that tag team had imploded and they had a nice little undercard feud and throw that on here. I I I actually um thought that this was an actively bad match. Um, I, don't, I didn't even think it was... I thought it was quite boring for long stretches. Uh, the, the crowd absolutely shitting on it didn't really help um, things much. But uh, the Thez press at the end looked really awkward to me. Like, he didn't, he didn't hit it very well. Um, and, I mean, are you buying the Thez press as a finish in 1989? When the Cuban assassin has been basically dominating the match for 10 minutes and he gets a Thez press out of nowhere. It, is that believable as a finish? To me it is, but that's really just because of the historical connotation that it, it was the great Luthez's finisher and, and growing up, even if you hadn't seen much, the general perception as a wrestling fan is, well, he was the best. Chad, your, your views on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, on the spectrum of finishers, I don't think Thez Press is in the uh, upper echelon, but at least it does have an established history with a world champion, so I'm not terribly bothered by it. And it kind of works as just that quick flash pin. I mean, the move is morphed with Austin in that now it's really just, it's not even a pin attempt. It's a high move out of nowhere to pop the crowd that then leads to punching the guy on the ground. Right. 
Well, I mean, it, it, even if we take, even if we accept that the Tez Press is a, you know, legit finisher, I, d I didn't think this was a particularly good one by Tommy Rich. Um, so yeah, I was very disappointed by this match because I, I thought Tommy Rich was pretty good versus Luger last time. Um, next up, Gordon Soley is with Rocksteady and Bebop. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> fabulous Freebirds are back, and uh, Jimmy Garvin <laughs> immediately says the word "stinking," <laughs> which uh, which made me laugh because uh, that's all he, Garvin seems to do now. He just says says the word "stinking" over and over again. Um, uh, Michael Hayes says a few things too. They're still world champs, and they still have very cheap-looking shades at this point. I d these are horrible uh, sunglasses here. I don't know if they were in fashion in 1989, but they look like they've got them f like free. You know, maybe they're going to see a 3D film in the cinema or something, or they, they just, maybe they got them. In fact, they look like the sort of glasses you might get free uh, with a Happy Meal at McDonald's. Promos were particularly lackluster on this show. I thought, um, in general, uh, there was something not quite right about them. Were they all pre-records? Do you think? Uh, it's a, it's a good possibility they were pre-records, and also, I mean, I think they were so short. Uh, they were very short, kind of just basically sound bite type promos, so uh, not a lot of depth to them. Yeah, not a great night for promos. Um, anyway, the fabulous Freebirds are defending their world titles against. Oh my god, the dynamic dudes. And they're being managed by Jim Cornette. So what's the story here? That Cornette has decided to take on these two young punks, Sarp? Is, is that what's happening here? Why is Cornette with these losers? Yeah, I forgot the genesis is the, the start <laughs> of the, um, the team, but it was a horrible gimmick. I can't see these guys getting over in Orange County. <laughs> It's it's clear that they were trying to replicate the Midnight Express in terms of the in-ring work because they tried to do a lot of clever-looking, colorful double teams, but they're not the seasoned performers that those two are. They would both go on to do other things, but, I mean, Johnny Ace was successful only when he was in All Japan, which it's a totally different style. It's not polished. It's not a smooth style. It's a, it's a gritty, rugged, smash-mouth style. Shane would have his... You know, Glory Days more for his personality, his charisma, really, than, than for being some sort of polished, fancy and rework. So they were miscast in a poor gimmick. Yeah, I mean, they're wearing some horrible clothes here, like fluorescent yellows and pinks, and they've got dudes written across their backsides. Um, just uh, like horrible. I would have hated to be the kid at the start here. He actually looks happy though. This particular kid. Um, to be uh, with them, they, they come out to the Beastie Boys as well. Uh, I've got that right, stuff right? The, that was the Beastie Boys they came out to. Did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> now, the, the funniest thing about this match is that um, as the dynamic dudes come out, they are loudly, and I mean loudly, booed by the Philly crowd. Um, I wouldn't just say boo; like they're basically buried by this crowd. Uh, they couldn't be booing them any harder. Like, George Osborne at the Olympics wasn't booed as loud as uh, the Dynamic Dudes uh, were booed here. Um, and the Freebirds 
were loudly cheered. Um, and, uh, of course, Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin were all too happy to milk that uh, applause as well. Um, and, Chad, I mean, this is probably the most egregious mugging that we've seen from a heel team so far. Is it acceptable, though, because the Freebirds were kind of like this anyway? Or, or what's your feeling on this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in this case, uh, I mean, the the dynamic dudes were booed so loudly and thoroughly here that I, I don't know if anything could have been done to kind of recover the face hill structure they were uh, going for hypothetically in this match. So, um, Jim Ross says as this match starts, <laughs> and I quote: "Many say." When he added Jimmy Garvin, he, uh, he's talking about Michael Hayes here. Many say that when he added Jimmy Garvin, he created the best version of the Freebirds. Aficionados can debate that, but the fact remains that they never won the world title until Jimmy Garvin came on board. Well, I guess we are aficionados. Does anybody here think that the Jimmy Garvin version of the Freebirds is the best one? <laughs> uh, no. No. <laughs> okay. Um, and the, the other big talking point that Jim Ross keeps on bringing up is that the dynamic dudes um, can always fall back on their college degrees uh, if uh, wrestling doesn't work out. Which I thought was quite interesting given what we know John Laurinaitis goes on to do. And given that we know that um, Shane Douglas uh, goes on to have that graduate gimmick. Was it the, the scholar? What was that gimmick? The that dean. The dean. The dean. Dean Douglas. Yeah, the dean. And now he's uh, using his college degree to be a manager at a Target. I know what. Sorry. Store. A Target. Yeah. What's it? What's that? It's, it's a retail uh, store, kind of like Walmart. Yeah. That's what he's doing. He's, he's yeah. managing a supermarket. Yeah, he's managing a retail store. Uh, last I heard, so I, <laughs> well, I shouldn't laugh. At least he's making money. You know, it's better than uh, yeah. At least he's doing something. So that's yeah. Uh, his yeah. contemporaries are. His contemporaries are dead. So, it's just, but yeah, he's not particularly successful. It, it's just funny that Jim Ross would bring that up uh, for these two guys because, like, lots of guys have college degrees. I don't know why he's. I don't know why he's particularly bringing it up with these guys. I also don't understand why Shane Douglas uh, always made such a big deal about the fact he's been to university. Like, was he particularly clever? Was he smart? Like, any you know, famously Lex Luger had his was it 3.97 grade point average. He never made it into a gimmick or anything. I I, I never quite got that. Uh, why Douglas always goes on about his university background. Uh, just trying to look for a competitive advantage, trying to look for something to, that you can grab onto. Luger never needed to because he had that remarkable look, so I think he knew what his character was. Versus Shane, especially with having this very rocky start early in his career, he's looking for something to grab onto as a competitive advantage. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that A, the dynamic dudes are still around, and B, that somebody in the locker room there didn't know this was going to happen. Like, they've been to Fiddy before. They must have known that these guys were going to be completely shot on by this crowd. I, I mean, I think they knew. You think they knew? What? You think they actually got sent them, you know, for 
for hiding. I, I mean, I, I think by what happens in the next show we review that this was kind of pretty strategic setup uh, in this match right. for the type of reaction they would get. So, one one of the other little things that I uh, didn't realize until earlier this week, and this is going to sound stupid to, to everybody listening, but uh, I I hadn't figured out that Johnny Ace was actually Row Warrior Animal's brother. Um, I, I should have, obviously, I always knew that they were both called Laurinaitis, but I never made that connection before. Seems seems absolutely ridiculous um, that those two are brothers. Um, have they ever uh, done anything together, those two? Nice. Uh, I, yeah, I can't recall them ever teaming up or anything. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I think this run here is as close as they came, just being in the company at the same time. Yeah. They, yeah. They couldn't be farther further apart, could they? Really. Even at this point, even when they're in the same promotion here. Um, so th- the story of this match really is that the crowd loudly boo ev- everything and anything that the dudes do on offense. Um, and good, they pretty much deserve it. Um, <laughs> and um, they cheer wildly when the freebirds do anything. Um, we get a loud dude suck chant. Um, they, they end up chanting for the DDT later on um, and Bob Coddle makes a comment <laughs> at one point um, he says uh, he's still growing too Jim uh, about one of the dynamic dudes which I thought was uh, an interesting comment so so Chad what did you make of this uh, match uh, I mean this is a match is certainly the most memorable thing about it is the uh kind of the crowd dynamic, but uh, as an actual match with the action, we have seen some pretty brutal Freebird in-ring performances mm-hmm. past couple of shows. I thought they were pretty good here, uh, and the dudes did not actually blow as many moves uh, and have as many blown spots as they have had before. So as an overall match, uh, in-ring-wise, I thought this was fairly solid, which was surprising. Yeah, I mean, we did see quite a sloppy neck breaker by uh, Douglas at one point. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, there were still a couple of botches, but like in that first debut match they had on that clash where they were just reckless and flying all over the place, it didn't seem as disjointed and kind of their Midnight Express double team type moves. Sop? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a great match, but... I'll say it's a great version of Zank versus Rotundo. I mean, the dudes, much like Zank, are these supposedly good-looking young kids who are supposed to be exciting and everything. And while they're not particularly great, if nothing else, the dudes are more exciting than Zank. They're trying some flashy moves. They're trying to get over the crowd. They're not going to with that gimmick and not in this town, but they're trying. And the birds are certainly way more entertaining, if not better. They're definitely entertaining than Rotundo. And the crowd is way more invested. It's the same dynamic as Zinc Rotunda. It's a great version of that match. Yeah, but, uh, what I enjoyed about this is that the Freebirds were clearly loving it. They were clearly loving getting cheered this much, and they were milking it for every last possible uh, cheer that they could get. Um, and I actually found that quite funny. Uh, so I was entertained by that. Um, you're not really going to get me 
saying anything positive about the dudes, to be honest. Um, I just don't like, I just hate them that much. Um, I do have some more criticism of Coddle and Ross, though, because they just completely ignore the booze. Um, and I, I think that, as you said, it's so loud, the booing, that it's difficult to ignore. And that they, like, Coddle was just carrying on regardless, talking about this exciting young team, etc. Um, and I think in a situation like that, and we'll, we'll see it later on, Chad, when, uh, Eric Watts is around, um, where Tony Schiavone will not, he will not acknowledge those boos. Ventura just goes in and he acknowledges them. And surely there comes a point where the commentary team just has to acknowledge reality. I mean, what's your view on that? Um, I mean, that's something I kind of go back and forth on because I know, you know, now like when WWE goes to New York or Toronto, you know, when especially when they go to like Toronto, you get kind of these kind of smarky uh, comments from the commentators, which come from fans that talks about how you know they basically say the crowd's weird or it's a it's a weird crowd reaction tonight which can be expected uh so you kind of get these kind of stock answers to address that now but uh, and, and i mean i don't know i, I kind of i've never been a huge fan of uh just completely jumping ship on the storyline you're trying to progress even based on the crowd reaction but uh, it's, it's it's definitely something I'm kind of indecisive on with how I feel. Uh, overall, I didn't have a huge problem with them not acknowledging this, and I, I certainly don't in regards to Watts, uh, Eric Watts with Shivani when, uh, especially when like Bill Watts was in charge, because I mean you got to be looking out for yourself too. So I don't think Bill would have been happy if Tony would have just started burying his son based on a crowd reaction. So. It, it does get pretty <laughs> it does get pretty funny with that though. Because like Ventura is saying what are the crowds saying, Tony? Boo? Boo? And, she, and Tony's like, I think they're saying woo. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really pathetic. <laughs> it's really pathetic yeah. at points. Um, so where do you weigh in on that particular... I mean. Oh. Not much to add. I mean, Ch- Chad took the main part I was going to, the point I was going to mention, which is absolutely. I mean, you can't blame Tony Schiavone for the Eric Watts. It's his boss's kid. What's he going to do? Um, here it didn't bother me too much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's tough because you're trying to present a national product. You're hopeful that some of these characters are going to get popular on a national scale, especially with other demographics. At the same time, you're in Philly. This is a largely adult audience. It's a hardcore audience. It's a tough audience. These are the same fans that are going to end up being ECW fans in just a few years. We even get a close-up shot of the famous hat fan from the front row of the ECW arena. It's the same people, so they're not going to take to some of these guys. Yeah. I, think, I, I don't know. I, I just think that like they could have done something to say, maybe just acknowledge the fact they're in Philadelphia and, you know... Uh, this isn't the demographic that the Jews are going to appeal to, or something. I, I, I don't know how you get around it, but um, yeah, it's probably better been the best best approach. Is they should have known going in and come up with a strategy for how best to play it off. They did say that like the Freebirds had kind of their fans too in the yeah. crowd, but uh, right, that they was the end of it. Yeah. They, they, they acknowledged the DDT chant, didn't they? Yeah. 
And before we leave the match, one spot that was really awesome and really kind of epitomizes everything we're talking about is one of the dudes has um, Garvin up for a cradle for a pin attempt, and Garvin shoots him off right into a punch from Michael Hayes. And Michael Hayes is probably the only guy on the show who gives punches almost as good as Bobby Eaton. And the crowd just goes nuts off of the punch, just the punch. Yeah, no, that, that was a pretty good, uh, a pretty good moment. Um, I, I, I should mention too that uh, Meltzer gave that two and a half stars. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. Would you go that high, Chad? You too? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd be around there. I mean, I, I thought it was like I said, I was surprised. I, I was kind of expecting a disaster, and uh, thought it was a decent tag match. Um, d- d- just to go back, uh, he gave a rich assassin dud. Fair? I, yeah, I can agree with that. And he gave the uh, Samoan, Samoans versus Midnight's and Steve Williams two and three quarters. Um, uh, I'd, I'd go past three for that one. Yeah, me too. I think at least three and a half for me, that match. You, you too, Chad? Um, I, I, maybe not quite that. I mean, probably in about the same range of a three to three and a half. I mean, I th- I thought it was like that match was very fun, but uh, didn't have a you know great story or anything else. But certainly a very fun match. So w- we go from uh, that match to Chris Cruz uh, with the Steiner brothers. Um, they're facing. Uh, Doom, who they've never seen before, um, and here we get a characteristically awful promo from Scott Steiner, who um, who says something completely incomprehensible, something like, "When you're playing this ball game, you're playing our game," is what I got from him. Um, and then we get kind of manic Rick Steiner promo, who's in like full-on kind of, um, you know, Rick Steiner mode here. Any uh, any thoughts from on on this promo? It's one of uh, one of many uh, rather humorous Scott Steiner promos that we'll see over the years. Yeah, uh, you know, pretty pretty bad. I thought Rick, especially in this promo, had, I mean, it just seems like a lot of times with Rick, they couldn't figure out exactly how I guess aloof they wanted to make him as a character, so, I mean, he's been kind of all over the spectrum. I know, based on this angle, he's supposed to be riled up at what woman did to him, but uh, I, I, I didn't like this at all, so. Any thoughts, Sob? No, I got nothing on the promo. If you want to transition to the match before you get to it, I'll chime in. To, again, great entrances. The Steiners come out to Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. And they're super over. I mean, these guys were red hot as a team right from the start. And after that, you get the big debut of Doom. They have a nice little entrance to her strut by Bob Seger. You get a woman standing out there, and she calls each one of, them, one of them from each opposite side of the stage, and they come out and walk her down arm in arm. Good entrances. Yeah, and they're wearing hoods as well uh, as they come out. They look pretty, uh, pretty cool. Yeah, and this, uh, for the Steiners, this is kind of the the first time the Steiners sort of have their more recognizable traditional look that we've seen. Uh, Scott's wearing the singlet, and they have the Letterman jackets, 
Uh, so this is kind of the look they would carry in the kind of bright colored tights. This is the look they would carry throughout the 90s. Uh, so this is our first glimpse at that. As this, uh, as this kind of match uh, gets going, Bob Coddle says that we've never seen these two talking about Doom, but it's really obvious who they are, right? I mean, two big black guys built like they are. Who else could it be? Do, do you think? Yeah. That, do you think anybody didn't know? Well, um, I mean, if they didn't know, they knew based off Ross's commentary because he names them uh, by name. Throughout the match, he messes up and names. He says Reed and Simmons did, did uh, about the, three or four times during this match. Did he? I, I missed that. I, I I got that he was calling them Doom One and Doom Two. Did, yeah, he, yeah, he he does that, but it, uh, there's a great YouTube clip of it that splices it all together, and it's just. Uh, it, I mean, it's it, he basically just says, "Yep, he took a big." Sh- out from Simmons, and then sometimes he's like, oh, there's the read and doom number two and all this stuff. He kind of catches himself a couple times, but uh, he doesn't name each one. Wow. So, <laughs> um, so as this match started, uh, I did think that the shine went on a little bit too long, um, and that they, I mean, this is the first time that we're seeing doom, okay? very first time that we're seeing them. So I thought that the logical way to go with this was to establish their badassery from the get-go. So like a, maybe a jump start with a very dominant kind of doom in the early going. Uh, but that's not what they did here. They went for a much more kind of classic uh, classic structure with an extended shine sequence for the Steiners. Sarp, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that complaint. I mean... Again, back to the entrance, you can tell the Steiners are over. They're super over. You don't need to do too much of a shine with them. Now, that shine when when they're throwing out these great impressive suplexes and dumping these other large men all over the ring with these suplexes, yeah, it's great to get them even more over. But if you have any interest in getting Doom over, they should be out there doing some impressive stuff. And this match doesn't really succeed to do that. Uh, the finish gets woman over as a protagonist, but even that doesn't really help Doom. So it, it's not a success in terms of getting Doom over. It's perfectly fine as a match. They're going to have a much better one at Capital Combat in about seven months or six months. It's, it's a good match, but not great. Chad? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it was an okay debut for Doom, but I agree with the criticisms that y'all laid out. And I do think that Doom was uh, still needing to gel. As we progressively shows, Doom's a team I really become a big fan of. Uh, in fact, I just got into their breakup in the 1991 yearbook, and I'm kind of heartbroken by that. But, uh, you know, here they were kind of working out the kinks. And uh, the Steiners, after that pretty awful performance at the Clash, they were more reined in here and did a little bit better job. But... Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I thought this match was kind of passable. I don't even know if I'd necessarily call it good, but I mean, it was, a, it was a definitely interesting to watch because you had a debut of a team that would kind of establish themselves in the next year and a half or so as uh, a big uh, force in WCW. 
Yeah, I'm with Chad. I also like Doom a lot. It's it's funny that it was almost like instantaneously as soon as they transitioned from this version of Doom to taking the masks off and being with Teddy Long, they suddenly went from a, a B-level heel tag team to cool as shit and just being one of the, the more entertaining things in the company and one of the great tag teams for another year. Yeah, um, I actually think that from a kind of like marquee fan perspective, this is uh, getting close to a dream match, you know, retrospectively. Doom versus the Steiners, but um, this version of Doom isn't quite as cool as the non-masked version of Doom. Um, right, you'll get that match you're talking about at Capital Combat, which is, yeah. I mean, I don't want to overhype it, it's not like outstanding, but it's a much better match. Um, Ron Simmons hits a stunner at one point in this match, uh, which was uh, interesting, but the really Doom didn't have enough offense in general. Um, a lot of bombs from Scott Steiner, again, not quite as sloppy as he was last time, Chad, but still a little bit loose, I think. A um, little bit kind of... Even Bob Coddle says at one point, um, that's going to hurt somebody. Because I, th I think uh, one of Doom basically lands you know, on their head at one point from one of his uh, crazy suplexes. Um, I did think that this is the best that Butch Reed has looked in quite a while, Chad, that we've seen. Yeah, um, yeah I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, yeah, we still had Scott being reckless, Rick making some goofy faces, but, uh, so that kind of hindered it a little bit, but, uh, yeah, it was, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of conflicted because it's better than what we've seen, but as Sarp has alluded to, it's not as good as what's to come, so it's kind of in the middle there. I did think that this match is never going to have a lot of psychology, is it? You know, you've you got these four guys in there. You're gonna get what, a lot of bombs and power moves and stuff like that. So I kind yeah, of, you want you want to see an almost all Japan pro wrestling level match when you see these four go at it. I, I kind of enjoyed it for what it was, you know. Um, other than some of the structural problems, um, since I thought you guys like like ranking since you guys like the rank on Scott Steiner a little bit, and I'm no huge Scott fan, but I was for this brief eighty nine ninety period. I will jump in and say he does. He actually does a pretty decent job as facing peril in here. Nothing outstanding, and certainly doesn't stand out on a show where we saw Bobby Eaton playing facing peril. But he doesn't do bad here. No, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go along with that. I think that the the, uh, the stretch sequence isn't isn't bad at all. Um, one last thing: uh, that Dave, Dave Meltzer here um, does mention that in the middle of this match, a fight broke out in the crowd. And nobody was watching the match, they were watching the fight. So that's why it may have lacked a little bit of heat in, in the middle. I didn't notice a particular lack of heat in the middle, but um, apparently if the crowd goes quiet for a while, that's the reason. Uh, he gave he gave this two and a quarter. Sound about fair to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I may be just a tad higher, but I, I, that sounds pretty fair. Yeah. Sure, I'd go two and a half. As, as a point of reference, I'd still have the, the midnight match higher at like three and a quarter or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you're saying this match is as good as the Dynamic Dudes Freebirds? You get, you uh, that two and a I'd probably have the... Uh, they're kind of... I mean, to me, they're kind of about on the same level. Each had sort of problems with them, but uh, I enjoyed them both. I mean, I don't think as far as a, a middle card, filling out a card on a pay-per-view, I didn't think they were very bad at all. And 
I, I really like watching, uh, one thing with doing these shows is I've really gained a lot of, uh, kind of love for tag team wrestling again. Mm-hmm. And WCW throughout this time, even though you may not get the best matches, I think that's really one area that they had matches where, I mean, to me, WWF at this point with the pay-per-views, you just, I can't off the top of my head remember these kind of shows that had three or four tag matches deep that were uh, on pay-per-views that were, you know, pretty good. And we see that here where we have, you know, two, three Three tag matches on this show. Well, actually, four tag matches, including the main event and then the six-man tag. So there's a lot of uh, tag team wrestling on this show, and each match is not awful. I, I completely agree. All, all the tag matches are good. It's a shame that Dodek wasn't replicating this model because the only good matches on their favorite views were usually the tag matches. <laughs> all right. Um, next match... For the U.S. title, oh, hold on, we get a little promo here from Lex Luger, looking pleased with himself. And I, I, it, again, it's brief, but I think it's another good, good promo from him. He's on, he's on a decent one promo-wise. Uh, yeah, this is, I mean, watching his promos at this time, it's kind of the genesis of his uh, narcissist character. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, I kind of didn't realize how much crossover there was there but this was another good promo and to me with each each promo he really feels like if you've got flair as the you know top kind of star in your promotion and stuff like that luger's just kind of one step behind him uh really kind of looks poised to take the reins in a lot of ways yeah and at one point jim jim ross says something like can anybody give me any reason why lex luger is not going to be the wrestler of the 90s um, and, I mean, looking at him right here, there is no reason. You know, yeah. he, he really should have had a better... Well, I mean, I guess we can talk all day about what happened to Lex Luger in the 90s, but he really sh- was poised to have a much uh, kind of bigger impact than he, than he would go on to have. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, to me, like, to use a modern perspective is... I mean, somebody like Dolph Ziggler right now in WWE, there's a lot of people on the internet that are clamoring for him to get a run at the top of the card. And I, I mean, I do like Dolph, but I would say the promos we've seen from Lex are better than the stuff Dolph does currently in WWE. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, watching the matches, I mean, I'm watching Dolph's matches now, and I've watched a ton of Luger doing this project and with the yearbooks and I mean the match quality Luger was putting out is right up there too so I I, I mean I can't he, he definitely to me looks destined to be kind of a breakout main event level star for a decade to come yeah would you, Sarp you got any views on uh, on next Luger I mean for a long time it was fashionable to hate on him yeah, very, very much so. Some strong views on Luger. I mean, like most everybody else, there are a few wrestlers I dislike more than Lex Luger from 1992 on. I mean, there, it doesn't get much worse than that. But I think that the, the vitriol towards him from that era has eclipsed this the pre-92 era or even pre-91 era. And for good reason. People are really turned off by him. He's lazy. He didn't love the business. He's just 
gets behind his body. I get all that, and I agree for that bulk of his career. But in all honesty, in 89, probably into 90, I think he was my favorite wrestler at the time. Right. And if you're, if you, as you go back and you're rewatching this stuff, he was probably green through 87. He was certainly learning and coming along. But 88, 89, 90, he's really good. He's really good. He's rolling on all cylinders. He can play face. He can play heel. He can cut, I mean, not outstanding promos when you're on the same show as like Terry Funk, but good, effective promos, great matches consistently. Yeah, I loved Lex at this time. I thought he was great. Yeah, I mean, I, I would actually make the argument that he's a good kind of grade better in 89 than he was in 88. Um, Chad, I know you love those uh, Ric Flair matches, but I, I actually just think that Lex is that much better as a, as a heel uh, in the ring. Uh, and on the mic um, than he is as a babyface. In, uh, in I just think he's got a lot more to his game in '89. A lot more moves, a lot more stuff. That like there are times in '88 where, especially in the longer matches, the one I'm thinking of is the one with uh, Nikita Koloff. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, I, I reckon this Lex Luger in '89 now could have probably carried that match with uh, with Nikita that he had even for 20 minutes. Whereas the whereas that version of Luger was still too green to do it. Yeah, we're seeing him with a a wide variety of opponents uh, in '89. I mean, He's I don't know that how well. many times you got your I don't know how many times you got your match of the night, but yeah, wide variety of opponents. I mean, the last three shows I think you did. It's the Steamboat match, the Rich Tommy Rich match, and this match. And he's really impressive in all three, and all three are great matches. So, so let's go to that now. It's Lex Luger versus uh, Lion Brian, um, as uh, as Capetta likes to call him. Um, and <laughs> I've just written here. Uh, I predict that Jim Ross goes into meltdown going into college backgrounds, and uh, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> it's almost like he, he his head exploded with uh, with college background info here. Um, football and <laughs> yeah. Um, so I lost track of all of the accolades that he listed. Um, but basically, we've got a classic kind of power versus agility matchup here. Um, uh, <laughs> the only other little notes I've got going into this is that uh, Jim Ross and Bob Cod will talk about how wrestlers um, reach their prime later than in most other sports. Um, and then they make a little joke about how announcers also do that. And Bob Coddle says that they're both still waiting to hit their prime, which I thought was actually quite a funny moment from Bob Coddle. So I'll give credit where it's due. Um, and Jim Ross also says, at one point, Luger's chest, you could show a movie off it. So <laughs> I thought that was a quite good one-liner. Um, so, yes, I, uh, let's go to you first, Chad. Uh, pretty good match. Yeah, um, I mean, basically, kind of the premise is Luger underestimates Pillman going in, and Pillman shows a lot of aggression and goes toe to toe with Luger, and then uh, Luger finally gains the advantage. And when he does, he really attacks very intensely uh, on Pillman, and they have a, a to me, it's just a great back and forth match. Uh, went the perfect length. 
and and really one of uh, I mean I, I mean I don't know if I want to say it's one of the best matches we've seen uh, doing these shows. I, I mean I wouldn't say it's in the top five or ten probably, but uh, I really enjoyed this match, the story it told, and I had a lot of fun watching it and thought it was a perfect match uh, that re- really made both guys look stronger out of it. So I thought that was a big accomplishment. Sop? Yeah, I, I completely agree. This is, um, again, I'm, gonna, I'm always going to jump on at the entrances. Um, Brian Pillman has a great entrance where he's flanked by a bunch of cheerleaders to really get over that collegiate background. And him as a fiery young pretty boy baby face comes out to rocket by Def Leppard. The image with the cheerleaders was awesome. And you already got the football references started with JR saying this is his Super Bowl since he's getting a shot at the U.S. title early in his run. Um, Luger has a pretty good entrance as well with some great poses. As Chad has mentioned, you really see the, the groundwork being laid for the narcissist character between his mannerisms, his promo, his facial expressions. I mean, he, he's got it. He owns it. He, he, the character is, is set. Um, the match is outstanding. The match is it's a very well-worked match. I think it's the best on the show at this point in that there's almost no botches. The psychology is sound, that fun psychology with the big man, little man. Also, as Chad mentioned, the additional layer of the overconfident champion because he's more established and bigger than the up-and-coming Pillman, who's also smaller. Pillman's everything Tom Zank isn't, as we've mentioned, and everything the dudes aren't. He connects with the crowd. They like him. They don't shit on him like they do all the other pretty boy baby faces on the show. Because he, he has it. He's, he's got the charisma. He's, he's got that certain edge to him that makes him makes them take to him. He's, he's great. It's a great match. Yeah, I, um, I thought Luger was fantastic here. He had uh, great-looking clotheslines. He was vicious. He was intense, like Chad mentioned. He gets a great suplex in at one point. I also thought Pillman was pretty great here as a kind of plucky young lion underdog. Um, when I say young lion, he's probably about the same age as Luger. Um, but he's clearly the underdog in this match. Um, the hot shots, uh, various different hot shots that Luger gives Pillman uh, all look great. Pillman sells them amazingly, including the one for the finish. Um, easy four stars for me. Uh, at least four stars. And Meltzer gives it three and a quarter, which is a little stingy, I think. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought Meltzer had been pretty fair uh, on this show with his star rating so far. This was the one big discrepancy I have uh, from him. I think you'll find with Meltzer, when you look at those, a lot of those ratings, a lot, oftentimes he, he gets in a move one way or the other. Either he likes the show a great deal or he doesn't like it a great deal, and you'll see it more often than not across the show. Either they're going to be constantly slightly inflated from what you're rating them, or slightly lower than what you would rate them, and it's going to be across the board, depending on how his, his mood is going into the show. So, I guess the question with this match is, how high would you go? Because I, I said easy, at least four. I don't know, like, if I was rating this for a, you know, a 80 set or something, I'm, I don't know, I'd be tempted to give it even more. How, uh, how high would you go? Um, I mean, I, I got no problem being... This a match like this in kind of the four, four and a quarter uh, range for me. Yeah, I would rate it four stars. I mean, everything else we've already said about it, and it, it's it's just it's such an effective match. Everybody comes out stronger. 
Luger further establishes himself as that guy who all the talking points we made earlier, he's going to run this business into the 90s. He's, he's, he's going to be the guy on top. He still comes out strong while making a guy that has recently debuted at the company so much bigger star than he was before the match started. Yeah. I, I, and in, in fact, a little uh, something to think about here is, um, I mean, watching this show and seeing Lugo and seeing Sting, if you had to pick a breakout star out of those two, you'd, you'd point to Luger, wouldn't you? You'd say Luger's going to be the guy who's going to carry the can going forward rather than Sting. Or, 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 or would you not? Because, I mean, I'm just thinking about the shows that we have forthcoming here and what they do at Starcade. Um, any thoughts on that? Like Luger versus Sting at this point for who you'd pick as a company ace? Um, I mean, this is this will be a reoccurring theme as we go into '90 uh, throughout 1990. But uh, I, I think it's pretty clear by what we see from both of them in 1990 uh, versus Flair that Luger was at that point in time the choice of the person to go with that they should have went with. Right. See, I, I, I think at this point right now is kind of even. My, my concerns with Sting at this time as a fan was I wasn't sure about the longevity of that gimmick. Mm-hmm. Turns out I was wrong. I just I prefer non-colorful cartoony gimmicks. That's just me. But, I mean, Sting was so over as a babyface with those crowds from right when he got there at the end of 87. He's so over at the bash in 89. He's so over here and... Yeah, so I think it's a pick really. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Sting's performances were not terrible either in 89. I mean, he had the good match with Muda. Uh, I mean, we can't really judge much from his three-minute match with Iron Sheik or whatever, but... Uh, and, and also in the, the the tag matches with Flair as his partner, I haven't had a problem. Yeah, he's not as polished as Luger. I haven't thought he's added... Right. I, I, I guess the big difference with Sting and Luger is that I, I guess the crowd really loves Sting in a way that they maybe don't really love Luger. Like, because we, we said this before, Chad, if, if you're looking at your roster, Luger's always a guy you can turn. Whether he's a heel and you need faces, you can turn him, or whether he's a face and you need heels, you can turn him. Whereas you, would, you wouldn't really think about turning Sting. Because, like you said, he always gets such a big crowd reaction. So, I guess there well, is that. Yeah, I mean, I think Sting at this point in time, I mean, he does have kind of that next level potential. I mean, by that I mean that I think they thought Luger could be a you know a, a main event player and certainly an asset to their business. But probably at this point in time with Sting, they were thinking. You know, they probably had the next Hulk Hogan on their hands. Right. Or somebody, you know, that really broke through the mainstream wall. And, uh, I mean, I don't think Luger ever could have done that. So, yeah, that's probably part of their thinking. They're, they're Cena and Batista. That, that, you, yeah. you, can, yeah. you can turn Batista just as you can turn Luger. But Cena, it's not really that he's better. It's just he's the guy that connects on that other level. He's your merch seller, so you don't want to turn Sting. That's a very good analogy, actually. 
okay, so Chris Cruz is with the Row Warriors, who cut quite a classic Row Warriors uh, promo from, from them. Uh, we even get the snack on, uh, was it, diet, what does he say, snack on, we snack on danger, dine on death, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Paul Ellering is uh, lurking in the background here, and at the start of the promo you can't really see him. And then he emerges from the shadows, which I thought was quite cool. Um, and they are taking on the skyscrapers, uh, who are still managed by Teddy Long. So, Sarp, you're, uh, we've established on the show that you're big on uh, ring entrances. So why don't you uh, tell us what happens here? Oh, I was I was going to save my um, constantly going around with the entrances and go more on the main event ones. I was going to leave this one alone. <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on with the gold key, if that's what you're alluding to. <laughs> well, I, I think the isn't the gold key a reference back to um back to when Ric Flair got the key to the city when it was Ric Flair Day? Um, like I thought it may be an overhang from that. Or, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. He, because he he made some he made some jibe. Don't you remember he made a jibe about Ric Flair getting the key when he gets the key to the city will uh, change all the locks. And I thought that's when he started using the key. Maybe not. Um, and uh, well, I I thought that this match is kind of uh, another right dream match from 1989. And this would have been a dream match, right, for a casual fan. Yeah, yep. this. I mean, to me, this seemed like your uh, typical team of the '80s versus what, prospectively, could be the team of the '90s, as far as a powerhouse uh, standpoint. And uh, well, I mean, the crowd is just wild for it. Uh, we get, uh, among other things, another Whirly Bird powerbomb by Sid here. Um, so, why don't you tell us uh, what you thought of this one? Uh, I, mean, I can't emphasize enough how excited I was about this as a kid. I mean, like the things Chad mentioned, this is a dream match. If, you, if you're a kid and the Road Warriors are, you know, they're the coolest thing in wrestling, essentially. And the Skyscrapers, they, they from the moment they debut and the moment you saw them, their look, their size, they, they do have a charisma, the two guys. They're not just a couple of big stiffs. They, they have a charisma. They have an aura to them immediately thought, oh, wow, I can't wait until these guys go head toe-to-toe with the Road Warriors because it's actually going to be 50-50. They're, they're not, it's not going to be the Road Warriors just eating somebody up, which is what it is and which is why this is a really good, fun, entertaining match. I mean, it's got some botches at times. Sid is still green. These are not the fourth smoothest wrestlers in the, in the world. This is not a four-way dance between four Ricky Steamboats. They're, it's, it's a little messy at times, but it's a Road Warriors match that's 50-50, with a lot of power and a lot of action, and it's not something you saw a lot. Chad, do you generally agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, I'm. I mean, I'm honestly not a huge uh, execution guy. I know maybe sometimes just in analyzing the matches on this show, it feels like we may emphasize that because that's something very objectively that I think we can point to. And say, oh well, this these moves were executed well, but you know, for if any match kind of deserves a pass and being just sort of a sloppy bang uh, powerhouse type match, it's it's this one between these four guys, and uh, I, I really thought they delivered. They threw a lot of bombs, 
kept the pace up, and uh, I, I actually really enjoyed this match in a fun type of kind of, it was almost like two robots going at each other. Uh, it was a very fun match. Yeah, and I, I will say Hawk sold a good bit during this, um, during the kind of face, well, I, I don't know if it really was a proper face and peril section, but during the bits where the, um, the skyscrapers were on top, Hawk was selling a good bit. And he, t- he takes quite a massive bump on the railings. Like, I don't know how, t- I can't remember if it was Sid or Spyview, but that's a long way to fall down onto the railings there. It looked like it hurt a good bit. Um, Spivey's execution was actually a little bit better. We got a suplex and a side slam from him, and they didn't look terrible. There was one uh, kind of awful bit from Sid where he's running uh, in with a knee in, into the turnbuckle. Uh, I don't know how he managed to make that look bad, but he he, he did. Um, but in general, yes, I thought this was fun uh, for what it was. It, it was everything that you could expect from a, a match like this. Um, and I thought that the DQ finish was really the only way out of uh, of get it. It was the only way out of this without with it out either team jobbing right. I mean, you're you're kind of in a corner here. You can't have anybody getting pinned, so it was a logical thing to do. Um, yeah, my problem with the finish is, is I don't really have a problem with the finish for the reason you just said because it's a good finish for what you're hoping. You're hoping you can get a series out of these guys. Um, which they did kind of, but it was all deflated because of skyscraper injuries and whatnot. My only problem with the finish is it was the third time on this show we've seen the heels sneak out with foreign object use, whether it was the Midnight Express match, the Doom Steiners match, or here. And replicating that same finish three times, that was a, I didn't really care for that. So isolated to this match was fine, but in terms of it now happening for the third time on the card, it was kind of shitty to me. Yeah, I'd, no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that, but I think if they had to change it, it would have been earlier. Maybe change some of the earlier finishes, maybe change a finish of the six-man tag or something. They had to yeah. go with a DQ finish here. Um, the other thing I'll say, uh, and uh, Chad, I don't know if you agree with this, but it feels like the Royal Warriors have got their mojo back now. They, they, they felt like they were in limbo for a good bit of this year, but they feel like they're kind of back in the thick of it now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, this uh, this is probably the like most high position we've seen them so far this year on the card, and uh, I mean, I mean, they're in the uh, in the Starcade uh, tournament, but uh, after that, this is pretty much kind of like their last big run on the top. Where I mean, we'll see them throughout the first half of 1990. But, uh, this is probably the highest up they'll be between this and Starcade. <clears throat> so, Chris Cruz, he's with Ric Flair. Ole Anderson is back. Um, and he's in uh, Flair's corner here. And uh, he's with Sting. Um, and uh, the only really, the only real thing I've noticed uh, here is that I thought the promo from Sting was awful. He says, and I quote, It's Halloween, and there's going to be a havoc. It's Halloween, and there's going to be havoc. And electricity is flowing. It's Halloween, and there's going to be havoc. I think that was Yates. (laughs) Yeah, WB Yates said that. (laughs) 
um, so, so Sting, uh, like he has consistently disappointed me on promos. Uh, it has to be said, and um, I feel like his whole thing is already getting old here, um, which uh, is a bit strange because he he goes on and on in this gimmick for another five years before changing it. Um, any thought of, like the Sting? get better as we go forward do we think as a promo guy so I, I don't remember him being this annoying um i mean i think sting will definitely have his ups and downs and even some people haven't seen it but some people kind of clamor that his actual best run on promos is some of his tna stuff so i don't i don't know i think we'll see a lot of inconsistent sting mic work as we go through these shows yeah. Sarp, were you uh, into Sting as a kid? Were you uh, a Sting fan? Uh, no, because I, I liked Luger. I Sting was feuding with Muda at this time. I like. I thought Muda was just about the coolest thing going in wrestling. Um, but I, I got Sting. I like his entrance here when he comes out. I mean, the energy, the energy from the crowd, the energy coming out of Sting is so authentic and genuine that it, it's pretty undeniable. Yeah, he, he definitely has excitement. I'd agree with that. And he, he he is a guy who always gets a massive pop from the crowd. Um which is which is why the ongoing Hall of Fame argument, uh, which shows that Sting was never really a big box office draw, is quite surprising because he was always, always over with the crowd. I didn't quite understand what and he always gets vilified for that. I, I'm not gonna defend him. I think it was just a matter of the old business is sick. The business is cyclical. Arguments that the time when he was finally put on top and left alone, meaning Luger and Flair were gone, was when the business had been trending down downward, especially in WCW. And through no fault of his own, when it ticks up again, it's always going to be credited to the fact that oh well, they got Hogan and Savage and Hall and Nash and all these guys. So he's. It's through no fault of his own. He somebody had to be on top during the couple of really dark years there, and it was him. But I mean, I I've seen it said that overness means nothing. Um, but like clearly, Sting connected with people in a way that many other baby faces who we've seen on this show, for example, didn't. So I mean, I don't know. Is it true that overness means nothing? Like like at some point that has to convert into into ticket sales and things, doesn't it? Like, I mean, logically, if he, if people are cheering for him, they're going to want to spend money on him at some point. I agree, but I come at it from a skewed perspective because I didn't really like WWF, and obviously they made a great deal of money just having people just go in droves to just go see anybody versus Hogan. That model didn't appeal to me. I was more a fan of the model of well, you can have your good protagonist, but what's going to drive the people to the towns is your good antagonist. That's what's going to make you want to go to wrestling. You're going to want to see this guy get his ass handed to him, which obviously is false when you look at the DoDF model. But I just I prefer the more the more southern model of, of booking. So I would say um, my response to that would be: Well, Sting needed better feuds, better rivalries, mm. things. Like that. Okay, um, so going into the main event now. It's the Thunderdome match. Bruno Sammartino is the ref. Um, 
Now, Sarp, here's your big moment. The entrance is each guy comes out alone. <laughs> awesome. Awesome stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you take us through it? Uh, I mean, like I said, Muna comes out and we do get the, the Dragon Master. He's there. The commentators no-sell it, I, I believe. I don't think they even mentioned who's that guy there. It's Dragon Master comes out along with Hart and Muda. He's just kind of standing behind them, making sure they don't get jumped by anybody. And it isn't until, I think, the following week on TV, when they did the exact same gimmick with him coming out, sort of walking behind them, that they then acknowledge and say, hey, who's this guy? Where did he come from? He was just on your pay-per-view, you dumb shit. What are you talking about? Who is this guy? Where is he coming from? And, and that's on Mr. J, we're thinking? Yeah, I guess. Well, I don't know. I still don't know what they're alluding to in Mr. J, because J and JTEX is just the nation of Japan. It's the Japan-Texas connection that Gary Hart has brokered with Terry Funk and Great Muda. So I, I don't know why, if, if he's simultaneously being called Kendo Nagasaki, Mr. J, and Dragon Master. It, was, it wasn't very well-defined gimmick. Um, next out is Funk, and anytime the conversation comes up is what's the best entrance music of all time, to me, it's always hand down. Terry Funk using Man with a Harmonica from Once Upon a Time, Once in the Old West. Best entrance music ever. It's best heel music I can think of. And he's over like you wouldn't believe. He's getting beers thrown on him. He's teasing, getting into fights with fans up and down the aisle. I mean, Funk, Funk in this run is, is out of this world. Out of this world. That, that music is exceptionally cool. Yeah. And he, he the, the better entrance is probably the one at the bash because he's got that music and then he's got the, the riot police sitting there protecting him. Here he doesn't have the cops, so he, he gets tagged with a couple beers. He's threatening swinging on some fans. They're threatening swinging on him. It's good stuff. You're going to give us the face intro, too? <laughs> oh, like I mentioned earlier, Sting is just, it's a lot of energy. It's just, it's, it's an authentic energy as opposed to what you would see in a lot of other companies a lot of time where they're trying to fake it or filter it, Sting's over. I mean, he's really over. If he was tired a couple of years later and the gimmick had, had lost its legs, these years here in 88, 89, when he's on the upswing, he's, it, it's, it's really exciting. And then Flair's Flair. He's, he's the conquering hero. Comes out without any women. As the right, right. mentioned a few times. Yeah, all business tonight, I guess. And um, the... Gary Hart is the designated exterminator. Terminator, not exterminator. Terminator. And Ole Hart is the Ole Anderson is the Terminator for the for the faces. Um so basically being the Terminator uh, essentially means that you're the Arnold Scarland for your team. You you have a towel and you throw in the towel. Um which is quite a weird concept. Here, um, the Thunderdome is a cage, um, but not made out of that kind of fence wire that uh, NWA used to use. It was much more like the well, I, I don't know what it was made out of, but it was kind of more like a grid, more like the old blue cage type material, um, but bigger, like you, uh, big enough to get your head through. The uh, the gaps in the in the bars, um, and it was meant to be, or at least the top part of it was meant to have uh, electricity flowing through it. I got all of this right. So this is basically what it was, right, Sarp? Yeah, it's it's more it, 
if you haven't seen it visually, it's it's not unlike the Hell in a Cell, but without a top. But because you do have a little room where you can walk around the ring, and it is it's kind of like that, a little smaller, but it's it's bigger than a cage. And the format, like you described, it's it's more like the Hell in a Cell, and it supposedly has electrified around different areas, I guess, closer towards the top. Yeah, and at one point, the cage, uh, this stuff around the cage catches fire, um, and uh, the Great Muta tries to put it out with his mist. <laughs> um, I didn't actually like. They were making a big deal out of this fire. Did you see it? I you see some sparks at different times, but it, I mean, it basically leads to. I, I think I don't want to say the match getting ruined, but obviously, whatever they had planned had to be changed a little because they had to kill the gimmick before the match starts. They had to turn off whatever they had rigged for the most part. They had had this, I, I don't know how it was going to work or what the visual was going to be, but they had to turn it off because as they turned the gimmick on, I guess they got some sparks and a little bit of fire. Why? Why you, you thought the finish was going to end up with them doing something involving those sparks. I guess it makes sense now. Okay. Um, uh, just a few other things. Uh, towards the uh, start of this match uh, before we get into the analysis here. Um, Jim Ross makes a little dig uh, here. He says that uh, Sting started with a team called the Blade Runners. Jim Ross, his partner has not progressed like this kid has. What do you think about that cheap dig, uh, Chad? Yeah, that was kind of a little, uh, again, kind of a little smarky dig on the part of Ross, I guess, getting in a, a little shot at Warrior, but uh, kind of part of the course, we'll see that a lot coming up. And uh, the, the, the other thing I wanted to mention here, um, just to keep my 80s cartoon references going, uh, right at the start of this match, um, Jim Ross says, thunder, 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 three times, and I shouted, <laughs> at, the, I shouted at the TV screen, Thundercats, ho, so there we are. Um, I thought I'd throw that in there. Um, so, what, what, what do we what do we think of this match? Uh, it's quite an unusual. Um, I'll go with uh, I'll go with you first, Chad. Um, I mean, I thought they tried to kind of have a different style concept match with the theme, uh, kind of the rope and the the leaves and I guess the electricity that wasn't turned on. Uh, so they kind of tried a different style gimmick match and. I, I thought the match was good, uh, certainly below a lot of the other great main event stuff that we've seen in 1989, which kind of hurts it, but uh, as a standalone match, I thought it was a pretty good brawl. Uh, you saw a lot of good exchanges specifically between uh, Flair and Funk, but I also enjoyed kind of the interactions opposite them, where we saw like Flair with Muda. And uh, also Sting with Funk. I thought those exchanges were pretty well done. The finish is kind of stupid with how the towel ends up in Bruno's hand. And uh, he gives the match to Flair. But this kind of the symbolism of him raising Flair's hand, I think, adds a lot of kind of prestige even in these kind of hokey circumstances. So, I, I, I mean, I, I would have no problem calling this a good match. I don't think it quite reached the great level they were probably trying to achieve, but it was certainly enjoyable. Sop? 
I, I agree with most of what Chad said. I'm going to take him to task on the finish in a second. But first, I'll say, yeah, it's a good match. I enjoy it a lot. The problem with the match and why it's not remembered as much as some others is if you're looking at the main events from this feud, the Flair Funk match at the Bash, the tag match from the Clash, and the Flair Funk I Quit match, those three matches are absolutely outstanding matches. Parv, I know you don't like the tag from the Clash as much as most, but most people would think that those three matches are just absolutely outstanding matches. And this is not at that level, which is unfortunate because it's a pay-per-view match. It's almost built like a blow-off. So it's not at the level you want it to be, but it's still really good. The crowd is into it for the most part. Uh, Funk is doing his best to try and be Funk and get some enter- some entertainment in there since they've lost the electricity. And you can tell there's a little bit of confusion that they kind of have to do away with some plans that they may have had. There's the clunky spots. The only things I really have a problem with are that it seems like they can't decide whether or not it's Texas Tornado rules or not. Sometimes both guys are beating up on Sting and they don't know if Flair should be allowed to come in or not or vice versa. So there's confusion there. Um, do you want to jump in for a minute before I say what I want to say about the finish? Sure. Well, I mean, um, I, I feel like I may be slightly higher than you two on this because I enjoyed it a good bit. Um, there were a few little things that bugged me. We get very loose suplex by Sting at one point. Um, and there's quite a lot of like aimlessness at different bits where you can tell guys don't really know what to do. Um, there's a bit where Muta like sneaks under the ring at one point, which I thought was going to lead somewhere, but it didn't. I thought maybe Mr. J was going to come out or something, uh, doink style, but it didn't happen. Um, but I thought there was some very enjoyable action here. Um, Muta did some very cool stuff here. Great little elbow drop by him. Good snap suplex. There was a cool bit where we got an atomic drop into a clothesline, which was a great double double team spot. I enjoyed Funk getting in Bruno's face at different points. Um, just cool visual seeing those two in the same ring and kind of you know the prospect of them even getting it on at different bits. Um, I did write here why went Funk and Flair electrocuted because uh, earlier on in the match, even if the electricity had gone down. Muta <laughs> sold the idea of it being electrocuted still. Like, he, he was still in his mind maybe thinking, I better sell the idea that this is there's still electricity here. Um, but then that was kind of quickly forgotten about, or maybe the electricity was still working on that bit. I don't know, but it was confusing. Um, and then there was a good, like, Funk went up and kind of got stuck up in that bit of the cage and there were some quite cool bits where Sting was swinging into him and whatnot. but it did feel like Funk was up there for a very long time um, we got a spike pile driver which was quite cool um, Sting does quite a massive jump from the cage at one point um, Flair is one of the biggest shin breakers I've ever seen on Funk um, and well, I think we're getting towards the finish now, but I'll just say that I did like the visual of Flair doing the figure four with Sting doing big splashes from the top on Funk, uh, which just looked badass, if nothing else. But Sarp, I'll let you get to the finish. Yeah, I'll pick up right where you started. It's 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 one of the overlooked things, overlooked spots when people often forget about this match or forget about this show. The, he's got the finger four leg lock on Funk, and Sting does a series of top rope splashes. 
it's it's incredible. Like you just said, the, the visual is fantastic. I think, unlike Chad, I think this is this finish is outstanding. Um, the only problem I have with the finish is when Muda comes in to save, he doesn't save. He, for whatever reason, goes to attack Bruno, and then Bruno lays him out. I don't know why Muda did that, but what lead, the, the visual of the, the top of his flesh is on the figure fours. I mean, that's a absolute great finish. You know that that's, that's, well, that's good enough damage to justify finish. And they did a good, very good job on TV of getting over the Terminators, that it was going to be a talc going in with the interviews with Gary Hart and, and the other people involved. They did an excellent job getting over that the towel was going to be the finish. And the, I think the fans were more keyed in than Bruno was. When the towel goes flying, the fans know. The fans already start erupting. They're, it's not like the fans are confused by the gimmick and are waiting until the hands get raised before they know who won. As soon as the towel goes flying off, off of Ollie hitting Gary and then the towel flies out of Gary's hands, the, the crowd goes nuts. So I, I think the finish is great, other than Muda's poor psychology. Any comeback, Chad? Um, I mean, I I do like the actual visual of uh, I mean, me criticizing the finish. The only part of that is the actual, basically, the towel throw and how it kind of just happenstance by happenstance ends up in Bruno's hand. You know, it flies right to Bruno. It just seemed a little contrived with the actual throw from uh, Gary Hart. But as far as an actual finish, I definitely think the damage was enough uh, with what Flair and Sting were doing and actually showing some good kind of double-team, tag team tandem moves uh, to win the match. So I didn't have a problem with that. It was more just looked like a little, I guess, video game-ish, how the towel kind of flew up in the air and right to Bruno. That was my only criticism. Problem with that. The problem with that, I'd argue, is not Bruno, but Gary Hart. He really telegraphs that throw, and uh, when they play the slow-mo, you can really see it. He doesn't just fall, and it, the, the towel doesn't just fall out of his hands. He literally throws it, uh, and it looks quite hokey, like you said, Chad. Um, I agree. It's unnecessary because it doesn't have to hit Bruno. Bruno could just turn around, see that Ole has his in his hand, and if it's on the ground, then that's sufficient. Right. Uh, I, I think we'd agree, though, that Bruno Sammartino, a better guest ref than Gene Kanitsky, Chad. No, because oh. I take him the task for the problems with the confusion as to whether, early on, when they don't know whether or not it's a Texas Tornado match. I don't, I, I like Bruno, so I don't want to beat on Bruno, but we got to blame somebody for why they were tagging at one point, why they weren't tagging at one point, why at one point Flair just turns around to a sting standing in the corner in the ring and tags him in. Right. When they're already going at it all four. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that Bruno was was great. I'm just saying that he was better than Gene Kanitsky. <laughs> okay, yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when compared to Kanitsky, yeah, he did not outright ruin moments. <laughs> I mean, he, he wasn't offensive. Like, he didn't get in the way or anything. So. No. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I'd like, I don't think he's up for a Billy Graham, is, is what I'm saying. Um, all right. Well, Meltzer goes four stars here, and I've written in my notes, easy four star for me at, at least as well. Um, by the sound of things, you you both go lower than that, or would you? Uh, I'd I'd be a little bit lower than that. Yeah, I'm probably in the uh, three and a half 
to three and three quarter. I mean, this this seems to be a kind of pretty dissension uh, match because as I did my prep work for this show, I read some of the reviews like our friend uh, Matt Petticord and he gave this match like two stars. So, oh, and I've it? seen a couple other reviews where this had gotten two stars. So I, I guess I'm kind of in the middle of them and you, Parf, but uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people shit on this, and it's it's great. It's the same four guys who have been having all those other four, all those other great matches. They don't have off nights. The the action is great. Everybody does great work in here and is into it. The, the problem is just some structure problems. So I think if somebody would get would get caught up in the structure problems and the failures of the gimmick with the electricity, that I could see why somebody would just shit on it. But it's still really good. I, I'm I'm gonna have a look at this. Uh see what Petticoat is up to here right now because two stars seems ridiculously low. I, I think that's why. I think some people get caught up on the structure and the failure of the gimmick that they're not recognizing that it's still a really action-packed fun match. Yeah, I mean, I would say with the Thunderdome cage, I mean, it's certainly not the best gimmick. It's uh, it, just as a structure, you know, it doesn't give the great impact or visuals that you get with kind of the chicken wire mesh case that we're most accustomed to with sort of the face grading and stuff like that. And, and certain elements of this cage with the rope and the branches and all that mess. I mean, that's kind of hokey and I can see how that would take some people out of it. I didn't have a problem with that. And, uh, like Sarp's been saying, the action surrounding the, uh, kind of the gimmick and the is really well done. So that's why I enjoy it. And with the stuff, it's almost a give and a take, like, because it's a different size, um, space between the holes you don't get the the base sum grading but you have moments where they'll like get stuck they'll get a limb stuck in it so it's a give and a take there's some things you can do here that you can't do in the other cages yeah yeah okay well um we got we got to the end uh and i think that this feels like quite an overlooked show in the overall scheme of things um and i'm just gonna let's just do a little uh hypothetical scenario Imagine now that this was, rather than being a WCW show, a WF show. I think people would go nuts over this show if if it had been a WF show from this period. You know, people go on and on about SummerSlam '89, for example. Um, would you uh, Would you agree with that? That this, I mean, it's, it's kind of overlooked, underrated show. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's definitely a good show. Um, I mean. I, th I think the to me, I, th I think to me the easiest comparison to make is that uh, I would certainly have this show as an overall show ahead of Wrestle War. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, and it, I, th I think it's just because of the main event, isn't it? It's because people remember people remember the main event rather than the whole card a lot of the time. Top, I'm guessing you agree that this is an underrated show, given how much... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had me mentioning earlier at the show that I have some nostalgia to this. I'm a big fan of it. And re-watching it, I was very, very happy to see that it, it held up well. I was in the habit of watching it every year on Halloween as a kid, and but I haven't seen it in a while. So seeing that it stood up as a, as a fan later on, I was very happy. I think if it was a WF show, I do think people would have liked it. I hate putting over Vince McMahon, but I think if it was a WWE show, the electricity probably would have worked. 
Um, and it would have been an even better main event. <laughs> no, but I mean, go, going through it, there, there's the main event, obviously. Skyscrapers, Row Warriors, um, Steiner's Doom, Luger Pillman. Um, I mean, that's as strong as any card people put on now, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time there was a pay-per-view with that many kind of matches of interest? Then ma matches which, um, even if they're not kind of you know stellar uh, from a work rate point of view, they're at least something that you know have something of interest going into them. I, I guess there are some you know Cuban assassin, which is Tommy Rich, but I mean the, the six-man tag. That's another pretty good, uh, pretty good match. So yeah, I, I actually think uh, when we do our um, our end of 80 show, uh, Chad, that Halloween Havoc may, this particular show, may rank pretty well with me in, in uh, all of the shows that we've done. Can you can you see doing well for you? I think it, it I mean, I don't know about top five, uh, but it's, it's there or thereabouts. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see it being a contender. I don't know. I mean, I know right offhand there's some shows I like better, but... Overall, I'd have no problem calling this a, a good show, uh, to a really good show. Well, let's do our end of show awards then. Sarp, you're the guest here. Match of the night. I'm going with Luger Pillman. There might have been some other matches I kind of enjoyed a little bit more for maybe personal rep reasons, liking the participants a little more, being a little more excited as a kid, Mark, to watch them. But as far as the best match, the best executed, most consistent, best structure, most effective, it's Luger Pillman. Both guys come out stronger out of it. It's the best match. Chad? I uh, pretty much echo everything Sarp said to a T. I love that match. And uh, well, I hate to be boring, but I, I've written them down here because I don't want to cheat. Uh, I've written Luger Pillman as well. Uh, so... No, no dissension here. I think it's clearly the match of the night. Um, MVP. Sarp. Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton was. Um, he he makes that six man almost a contender for match of the night. His his offense and his defense, whether he's facing peril, taking ridiculous bumps and selling, and being Ricky Morton, finally getting to be Ricky Morton after all these years, or if he's on offense, throwing great punches and hitting great suplexes and neck breakers. He's he's one of the unsung in-ring performers of all time, and it, he definitely proved it tonight at this show. Chad? Uh, I'm going to go with Luger. I don't think we've mentioned him as a – I know I haven't mentioned him as an MVP so far this year, and I thought this was his best performance of the year so far. I've, I've also gone with Luger, um, and it, it's for that reason, uh, weirdly, that – I thought that we I don't can't remember a time I've picked him for MVP and this was definitely an outstanding performance from him although I would say that Bob Eaton's a worthy pick as well it, it, was, yep. it was probably between Luger and Eaton for the show um, and then uh, Billy Graham uh, Tom Zank <laughs> I, I hate beating him up I, it almost and I've done it on other podcasts too I hate I hate I don't want people to think that, like, maybe I had a run-in with him and it didn't go well or something. I have no problem with Tom Zank. He's a perfectly serviceable worker, but somebody's got to win the award, and that match stunk, 
and I thought it was largely his fault. It's you, you have this tremendous opportunity presented to you to stand out, be what other guys on the card are doing. You know, Sid Vicious, Scott Steiner, Brian Pillman, young guys being brought in that are shining, even if they're not ready in Sid's case, that, that are getting over. And he just he, he he's got um, he's got the theme from Batman. That's all he's got. Uh, Jihad. Yeah, I'm uh, actually going to go with Zinc as well. Uh, we kind of have some consensus on these shows, uh, on this awards. But, uh, yeah, I thought for his position on the card, Zinc by far turned in the worst performance on this show. And, uh, well, I told you, I've written it down, and I'm not going against the ink here. I've written Z-Man as well. So, pretty amazing uh, consensus there. Uh, um, and that was even before I, I heard your picks. In fact, uh, Chad, is that me and you, every single one the same? <laughs> Has that ever happened before? Maybe. Yeah, I don't think that's happened uh, <laughs> where we had all three categories. So. Wow. Um, and uh, well, I'm not going to do comments uh, this week. We, we saved comments for the Clash shows, but I am going to read one that um, our friend NWA fan, who, uh, who tends to write on the main board, uh, I just thought it might be topical. He wrote... Uh, after our last show, Chad. Wow, total burial of Tom Zenk. <laughs> he was a de- he was a pretty decent worker in AWA and WWF. Never main event level, but he was definitely over. But I know Parv hates the pretty boy baby faces. LOL says NWA fan. Well, NWA fan, it's not just me who doesn't like Tom Zenk. Uh, you've heard it. You've heard it <laughs> um, from three of us now. So. <laughs> And I, and I feel bad beating up on him. He's totally serviceable. If you put him in a tag team or something, he's fine. It's just that here and on these shows, he's being presented as, as a singles babyface star. He's basically being presented as, as Pillman, and he's, he's not that good. Right. I, I actually think that he's um, – <laughs> I've said it before. I, I think – I honestly believe that uh, Paul Roma is a, is a justifiable – comparison point to Zenk. He's closer to Roma than he is to any of the other guys that we've talked about. Uh, I would say Zenk is a slightly better worker. I would say Roma has slightly more charisma. Right. So maybe it's a wash. But yeah. They're in the same ballpark, right? Yeah, absolutely. Alright, well, it, it's been fun uh, Sarp and uh, Chad, you had uh, just some sound issues this evening, but you got to the end. Uh, you got to the end. <laughs> Yeah, made it to the end, and uh, thanks again for coming on with us, Sart. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. Thank you so much, both of you, for having me. I've been listening to all your shows, and I enjoyed it very much. So it was was nice to be on. It was nice to be on for a show that I'm fond of. I'm glad that it it held up for me, and I'm glad you two enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, and uh, obviously you're welcome. Uh, There's many more shows to come in the the future, so uh, I think... Chad, you're the one holding the guest list there. I don't know. I think we've probably got up to 91 now uh, with guests going forward. But if yeah. there's any particular shows that you're fond of in the uh, 91, kind of 92 period, uh, let Chad know and he'll, uh, he'll slot you in there. All right. Sounds like a deal. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, uh, listeners, uh, we encourage comments. Uh, PWO is still the best place to, to leave them. Uh, but you can do it on the uh, on the main where the big boys play site or um the, you can even do it on the place to be uh place right chad the uh yeah 
Yeah, I have, a, I have a thread in there. We have our own forum. I've been doing some interviews, and uh, every time we do a new show, I put a new uh, put the description in there. So uh, wherever you want to leave us a comment, we welcome any feedback. Yep. All right. Well, uh, so long. See you next time. See you guys. Look, look at this, Jim. As we get our first look at the Thunderdome, have you ever seen anything as imposing in a wrestling event in your life? center stage for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>